Morning, please be seated. In the case of Attorney General of Ontario et al. against Mike Restul et al. and between Attorney General of Ontario et al. against Chief and Council of Red Rock First Nation. On behalf of the Red Rock First Nation Band and Indi of Indians et al. For the appellants, respondents on cross-appeal, Attorney General of Ontario, Peter Griffin, KC, Nina Bombier, Samantha Hill, and Richard Ogden. For the respondents, appellants on cross-appeal, Mike Restall et al., David Nawigabo, Catherine Boyce-Parker, KC, Diane Corbière, and Christopher Albinati. For the respondents, appellants on cross appeal, Red Rock First Nation et al., and Chief and Council of Red Rock First Nation on behalf of the Red Rock First Nation Band of Indians et al., Arlie Schachter and Caitlin Lewis. For the respondent, Attorney General of, of Canada, Zoe Oxal. and uh, Linus Evans and Anusha Arulia. Mr. Griffin. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, might I start by saying that on behalf of Council, we're privileged to have uh, Justice Morrow with us uh, and we thank her for her devotion to these difficult issues that will consume the court in this case and others over the coming years. Much appreciated. If I may begin then, the trial judge and five judges of the Court of Appeal for Ontario came to divergent views on the meaning and interpretation of the Robinson Treaties and as to what flowed from that interpretation. An interpretation that must not only address the past, but which I will say and come to a perpetual future between the Crown and these First Nations. The future matters. It matters in, res in, in respect, responsibility, reciprocity, and renewal. And as the minority of the Court of Appeals said, these are the keys to the Crown and First Nation relationship. If you would be so kind, and I would ask other counsel to be similarly of assistance to us, to indicate which reasons you were referring to, because minority and majority shifts depending on the issue. Very good. Uh, in this case, I'm talking about the Chief Justice and Justice Brown. But I will come back to that point, uh, Justice Rowe, because on standard of review, uh, there is some meandering, if I can say that charitably. The trial court and the Court of Appeal majority arrived at an untenable interpretation, and I say majority in respect of Justice Lowers, Justice Pardue, and Justice Horrigan that there were two annuities, the trial judge at paragraph 198, one collective annuity unlimited as to augmentation, 
and a second individual annuity being the only one to which the graciousness or discretion clause applied. Be my submission before you as the Chief Justice and Justice Brown found that that wasn't part of the context in 1850. It's not found in the subsequent century and a half. It reads out the discretion that is an essential element of the augmentation provision and it reads out the effect of the diminution clause. So and what, I say uh, on its face, unworkable. So what do you answer to the superior uh, plaintiffs uh, who point out that there are no other augmentation treaties like this in Canada? I say it's true that it is a unique agreement, but I also say that it's true that the circumstances under which it was negotiated and arrived at are relatively clear based on the contemporaneous reports of what took place. And so its uniqueness in my respectful submission doesn't change the obligation of the court as to how to interpret it in accordance with the Marshall Principles. I say the fourth interpretation is the one that best accords with both the perspectives of the Crown and the Anishinaabe it was adverted to by the trial judge, but never addressed or analyzed. It was not referred to at all by the majority, that is Justice Lowers, etc. And I say it's not only consistent with what was urged before the court, that is as an alternative by the plaintiffs in various ways, but it's consistent with the context, accords with the plain meaning, and doesn't exceed what's permissible on the language. And those are our martial principles. And that's why the correct interpretation is so important. It's divided these parties to this point in time. But what we're dealing with is the correct interpretation drives the remedy. I say the remedy is the declaration. Now, what you're going to address, I trust, is the arguments to the contrary, that all this Marshall stuff, that's old. The new stuff is housing. The new stuff is Satva. You have to get with this this new deference and sort of forget all the, all the jurisprudence relating to Section 35. We've got to look at contracts. We've got to look at, at uh, these things. And, and the name of the, 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 the zeitgeist now is deference. So presumably you will kind of deal with this because it's in the air, I think. Uh, I'll deal with that air and hopefully I'll clear it for you. <clears throat> so I say that, back to where I was, it sets the groundwork for the remedy, which is the declaration. It identifies the undertaking, which is so important to look at when one is dealing with the assertion of fiduciary duties, be it sui generis or ad hoc. It respects the Anishinaabe prior interest in the surrendered territories. It reflects the principles that I've described of respect, responsibility, reciprocity, and renewal. It advances the relationship uh, identified by the Covenant Chain Alliance, but it recognizes that the Crown has responsibilities both to its indigenous residents, but also its non-indigenous residents. And it doesn't set the parties off on what I will come to in a moment, which is an expert-heavy damages analysis where a court is attempting to exercise the discretion of the Crown. As to the cross-appeal, on any interpretation, I say the unanimous Court of Appeal was correct 
that there is no room for fiduciary duty on either score. Can I ask you, so you talk about um, respect, and I, I look at um, your friend's uh, pleadings, and they talk heavily about what I call the four R's, the respect, re responsibility, reciprocity, and renewal. Can you take me e through each one of those and tell me how the Crown has met those obligations? Justice Obamsawan, I recognize that 150 years of failure to address the augmentation after 1875 is a failure of the honour of the Crown. And it fails to uphold those four R's, if I can call it that. I'm not trying to make an argument here that asks for absolution with respect to history. But what does divide us is the interpretation of the treaty and the need to arrive at the correct interpretation in order to be the groundwork to proceed forward. And I accept, and if I may, I'll come to it in just a second, I accept that that is an issue that the court was going to ask me about. But I do say that the thrust of what the respondents argue by way of both the cross appeal and how they approach this appeal is essentially putting us back to what was rejected by all of the Court of Appeal judges. That is the notion of a fair sharing and the notion that one interest trumps everything. So, Mr. Griffin, you said that what divides, you said what divides us, you mean the, not us, but the parties. Not, not you, no, no. <laughs> is the interpretation and also the remedy, because you acknowledged that there was a, a breach for 150 years. Uh, so what divides us is uh, how to interpret this and what is the remedy? I was not downplaying the remedy, Justice Cote. I recognize that that's an issue for the court to which I'm going to come in a moment. Do you, yes. Is it, is it uh, just so I understand the framework before you get into the detail, your, your point about, is your point about the remedy that uh, Her Majesty's graciousness could be, uh, could be discharged in any number of ways? It isn't something that can be, you, a court might be able to say, this is not consistent with Her Majesty's graciousness, $4, but if it's $2 billion, $4 billion, $6 billion, $8 billion, $10 million, there are any number of numbers that may be consistent with Her Majesty's graciousness if you give meaning to the, that term of the treaty. And your point, is, is your point that that's not a matter for adjudication at first, uh, it is a matter for the exercise of the Crown discretion, and then there may be a question as to whether the discretion has been exercised by the Crown consistent with the treaty obligation, but it's not a matter of quantification and evidence at stage three as such. Is that, is that uh, do I have that right? Yes. Uh, essentially, uh, it is because the, uh, the court takes on the role of the Crown in exercising a discretion that is multifaceted. And I'm not suggesting that our courts don't deal with complex matters every day, but usually they are the types of remedies that flow naturally from a particular type of cause of action that takes us to that kind of analysis. This one is uniquely unsuited for a court determination. As this court said in Clyde River, reconciliation rarely occurs in a courtroom. But secondly, how do we reconcile if we're dealing with a judge-made determination of the Crown discretion? The Court of Appeal majority adverted to that in paragraphs 326, when I say majority, Justice Lowers and Pardue, by saying uh, that there were difficulties with this, there was overlap, some of the issues weren't determined, 
and they concluded by saying there are unusual complexities which may make this trial unmanageable. And in my respectful submission, that is just what is occurring. May I just interrupt here, though? I mean, you say reconciliation, <clears throat> excuse me, rarely takes place in a courtroom, but accountability takes place in a courtroom. And I guess the question that I have for you is, if that's your proposal in respect of remedy, is there, is, is there any room for stage three in this trial? How do you, will, will the graciousness of the Crown be exercised by way of discretion and then stage three? So just explain how you see that um, uh, happening, please. I say first and foremost, setting the platform for the proper interpretation of the treaties and the Crown discretion, then starts a process which is negotiation, because that's the process that you have to follow in order to establish the types of parameters that inform whether the honour of the Crown is being met. There may come a point where the parties are apart, because there's nothing about the honour of the Crown that says that it guarantees a particular result. But at that point, the court has a supervisory function to play with respect to whether or not the appropriate considerations are at least brought to bear on the appropriate information base. But the court can't make the decision. That's my fundamental proposition. Because you acknowledge that there was a breach. Let's say that there is negotiation and it is impossible to resolve uh, this or to uh, cure the breach if I say true negotiation are you saying that the role of the court is only a supervisory role or is there another remedy that a court may impose I say there's not an equitable remedy for the court to exercise the discretion but the court can give direction to the Crown as to the appropriate factors to take into consideration and will narrow it down and you see in the decision of the minority Chief Justice and Justice Brown how they attempted to set some parameters. I'll argue they went a bit too far in leaving it for a damages assessment. But that's essentially what it is. It's a refined process. But let me do two things. Don't we, have, don't we have proof also? Don't we also have proof in the Huron settlement that we understand was... Well, that's just what I into, into, in the summer because it shows that negotiation can lead to an honourable resolution, presumably, uh, and it was done outside the courtroom. And we, it, without a court saying, uh, obviously with the benefit of the Court of Appeals judgment. So I'm wondering how that resolution plays into um, what our task is. You've anticipated my next stop, Justice Dumel. I had hoped we could have a joint agreed update as to what had occurred since uh, the court, uh, Justice Jamal, you made your order on December the 14th and then the matter proceeded to a stay motion before uh, the trial judge. I have been able to agree this far with Canada that it's a, a joint recitation of what's occurred for the benefit of the court. On November 28, 2022, Justice Hennessy uh, dismissed the motion brought by Ontario to stay the stage three trial. The stage three trial did proceed with the superior plaintiffs through evidence and final argument with the argument completed on September the 26th of this year. Justice Hennessy has reserved her decision. Ontario and Canada asked Justice Hennessy not to issue her decision 
until after this court decides the outstanding appeals. Justice Hennessy advised that she expected to deliver her decision within six months, but would advise counsel shortly if it was her intention to hold her decision until this court has rendered its decision. Not having heard further, Ontario and Canada expect that the decision will be delivered within six months of the closing argument. The Huron respondents on this appeal did not participate in the stage three trial as a result of what you've referred to, Justice Jamal. Negotiations with the Huron respondents proceeded to a proposed agreement to settle a claim for past matters but not the future, which has been publicly disclosed by the Huron respondents, Ontario and Canada, as comprising a payment of $10 billion split equally between Ontario and Canada. The settlement is subject to further steps before it is final, including a motion for partial judgment, which will have to be brought before uh, Justice Hennessy. Further terms are subject to confidentiality provisions. But that brings me to what is obviously the inevitable question that you're going to ask me, you sort of have asked me, so I'll get into it now, which is, given 150 years of failure, what assurance do we have that you're going to do the job? I'll develop some of this in the argument proper, but I say the interpretation of the treaties cannot turn on denouncing Crown inactivity, which no doubt was a failure to do what the treaties called for. That's not how you interpret the treaties. We're here because the parties can't reconcile the interpretation and it leads to divergent results, past and future. And I say the fact of the negotiation that is described reflects the very point you made, Justice Jamal, that there's another venue, which is the appropriate one, it addressed a failure of implementation, but the declarations which are necessary will give guidance to the parties as to the backdrop against which they negotiate, some with respect to the past, all with respect to the future, because this is a perpetual treaty. But what about the argument from um, the other side that without having effective remedies or access to them, that the treaty guarantees, they basically have minimal value, notwithstanding the fact that the Crown's already conceded that it breached the treaty. The next thing I was going to tell you is that Ontario's come a long way. Ontario has come through the process of the trial. It's come through the process of not asserting a $4 cap and not asserting that there's an unfettered discretion and it has addressed the Huron respondents' issues with respect to the past. I can't say more about discussions than that. But, you know, at some point, reality steps in, and reality has stepped in for this government that it has to deal with these issues. But you could understand, Mr. Griffin, the skepticism that some might feel when they hear from Ontario that they've seized after 150 years that reality has set in. It took you a while to realize that reality set in. And in that spirit, the, perhaps the idea, even that Ju Chief Justice Strathy and Brown and Justice Brown had in mind in shaping the way in which things should proceed about going forward with, for example, directions to the trial judge to invite further submissions from the parties on specific points would be a help to uh, clear the air, as you said earlier. I'm not arguing against much of what 
the Chief Justice and Justice Brown said to the trial judge with respect to that process and arriving at certain parameters to assist the parties in how they deal with the matter. I just say they went too far to get to the damages assessment, uh, which was a concluding part of it. But I also say this, that what we're talking about is a declaration emanating effectively from the highest court in the land to one of the ten provinces to get on with it. And here's how we're going to deal with it. And that's where the honor of the crown is engaged. And that's where the parameters are set for the honor of the crown to be respected. And that is the message. We've been a part on the interpretation. It's going to get resolved one way or the other by this court. And that's the platform to move forward. Because also the limitations defense and uh, the impact of this if we issue only a declaration as opposed to other remedies? I will. And you have it from my, from my condensed book and my outline, uh, how I rely on that. So I just say is simply that allowing the declaratory relief in the way that I've described leaves the ultimate responsibility where it belongs, which is the crown subject to judicial review, needing to uphold the honor of the crown, makes the declaration an effective remedy to promote reconciliation, recognizing the unique nature of the discretion. And in Manitoba Metis, this court told us that it may be uniquely suited to certain types of circumstances. And I say dealing with the discretion is one of them. When, when you talk sorry. about it, sorry. When you talk about a declaration, it sounds very thin, just a statement, a declaration. But the declaration here is read in the context of a, a statement by the Chief Justice and Justice Brown that the Ontario has recognized, and Canada has recognized, that the uh, annuity should be increased, must be increased. Yes. Uh, that's on the record. And it is also... Um, having regard to the guidance that provided in paragraph 506 of the reasons. So it isn't a bare declaration uh, that Ontario has not honoured its treaty promise. It is actually uh, quite specific in terms of what's going to happen at stage three, but stopping short of a substantive equitable remedy because of giving real meaning to Her Majesty's graciousness. So I just, you know, when one speaks of a declaration, it sounds, well, that's a that doesn't give us anything. But I wonder whether the declaration in the context of this case is actually very much bordering on something much more meaningful and substantive. I accept that, Justice Dumal. Uh, the thrust of the declaration that was outlined by just the Chief Justice and Justice Brown was designed to engage the parties and to make sure they engaged on the right principles. And that's what I'm talking about, not a declaration in some lofty in the air proposition. And I was going to come to that and specifically what the minority, that minority did. But in my respectful submission, that is what gives the direction to the Crown as to what it has to do. But that, that, I think the point's an important one. Um, the, the, the the direction to the trial judge as to what those further submissions must be seem to be predicated on something other than a purely declaratory statement. It seems to be directing 
the path down which the negotiations would take place. And is, is that fair? And if, if, if was the chief, were the Chief Justice and Justice Brown overstepping what you think was the proper, the proper role in declaratory relief? Were they going to what the AG Canada says um, beyond declaratory relief for what they describe as a breach of the duty to diligently implement a treaty promise? The latter because it is more than a pure declaration in the Manitoba Metis style because it's directional and I don't shy away from that. That is appropriate and it gives guidance to the parties as to how to proceed. I just want to be clear then because 506, uh, paragraph 506 in terms of the direction for stage three deals with two things. One is um, really talking about how we get to an interpretation going forward, the kinds of considerations, the going forward part, and then there is the how do we address the breach in the past part. So am I understanding that you are accepting that 506 is an appropriate um, direction uh, for st stage three? The first two not the calculation of the amounts, if any, by which the Crown should have increased the annuities from time to time, so, because that engages the discretion. So where else, though, does, um, do, do, um, where else do you go if there's been a breach in the past that has not been rectified? Where else do you go to get, um, to get the Crown to carry out its duty if you can't go to a courtroom? You go to a courtroom. You get the direction as to how it is to be approached, and the Crown has to deal with it. Right, but, but you get a direction that tells you how to approach both the future and the past. Correct. And what's wrong with that? I don't have any difficulty with uh, something that approaches both the past and the future, because both have to be dealt with, and right. one leads to the other. So that the form of declaration that the minority of the Court of Appeal was directed to in the first two is how you deal with it, the frequency, et cetera. But that doesn't take away for a moment from the imperative that you have to deal with the past. So I'm just, why, why, what is it that you're objecting to in paragraph 506? Why don't you just be specific? The calculation of the amounts, if any, by which the Crown should have increased the annuities from time to time, and the damages resulting from the Crown's breach of the augmentation promise. So everything going to the past. Everything going to the past, if it is a question of quantifying by a court the exercise of the discretion. And that turns on you accepting my interpretation of what the treaties provide for. But I still don't understand where, where, the, um, where the First Nations get to go if the government have uh, breached the honour of the Crown and have not remedied it. They have not remedied it. They come to court for the direction as to the considerations that the Crown must take into consideration to arrive at the result. And that's the declaratory relief. So in your uh, factum, Mr. Griffin, you ask us to declare uh, that the Crown has a treaty obligation to address from time to time uh, whether the annuity will be uh, increased. 
So are you asking us just to declare that, that the Crown has this uh, obligation from, to turn its mind, to use the words of Chesterton and Brown, from time to time? Or are you asking us to say from time to time means, in this case, the following? I'm not asking you to do the latter, because what from time to time means will vary depending on the circumstances. Yeah. It could, it could, there could be a quantum shift. I mean, the, the difficulty with predicting the future, Justice Cote, is what elements are going to be brought to bear in this story, uh, which will affect quantum shifts, quantum shifts in value, quantum shifts in considerations, maybe sooner, later. So this is for the future, but for the past, because here in paragraph 506, the first uh, item is the frequency with which the Crown is required to turn its mind to the augmentation promise. So I understand your answer for the future. But what about for the past? If we say we declare that there was a breach for the past uh, and the Crown should have turned its mind from time to time in the last 150 years, what, should we, what are you asking us to declare regarding the past? I'm not asking you to declare anything with respect to what time to time means, because okay. really what we're looking at is fixing now okay. what happened in the past. Isn't, uh, I wonder whether, so you're conceding that the augmentation promise is justiciable. It is justiciable, um, but it's not to be judicially determined. There has to be an exercise of Her Majesty's graciousness. And then the court can say, that is not consistent with the honor of the crown. If you came back and said, we're going to double it to $8, that would not be consistent with the honor of the crown. To give an obviously ludicrous example. But it is, it is justiciable. One can say that this conduct is consistent with the honor of the crown or not. But it is, we have to give meaning to Her Majesty's graciousness and the notion that this is a matter of the crown's discretion to promote reconciliation. So it's not that it's not justiciable. You're acknowledging it's justiciable. We're going to have stage three but it's just not judicially assessed or judicially determined in the first instance. I, I think that's fair this far, Justice Jamal, that uh, the ultimate augmentation is a very difficult thing for a court to measure as to whether tomographic slices of a result are or are not consistent with the honor of the Crown. Your example of something small, I understand that to be the kind of issue where a court would say, you couldn't have arrived at that applying appropriate principles. And that's where the judicial review, I say, comes in. But I don't say that in a frank sense, a court can look at a number and say that number is or isn't consistent with the honor of the Crown on some quantitative, analytical, evidence-based basis as to what uh, experts may say in the course of a trial. But what you're doing there is setting up a model of discretion that we understand from administrative law, which is that the courts will send it back to a statutorily uh, empowered uh, body or, or maybe the Crown even to make a decision. But here we're dealing with a treaty um, and a treaty promise. And uh, there's another, there's different models that can come up there, that if, if a contractual party, if someone that makes a solemn promise in something that's to bind nation to nation now and into the future, why can't they be held accountable for that promise in a court? I'm not suggesting they're not held accountable for the promise, but you've got to look at the nature of the promise. This is a unique promise. This is a promise to exercise the Crown's discretion, I say, to do certain things. 
and that has to be looked at quite differently than other types of obligations. But what's wrong with the court saying, if graciousness has not been shown in the past, we will define what it is, and we will say that there is uh, certain things owing as a result in the past, and there are certain expectations set in the future for how it should be done, not just to wrap it up in um, graciousness as somehow a, a discretion that a court can't touch. So I say you can go part way along that road, in other words, a court may conclude that the result is one which is not consistent with the honor of the Crown or what would seem to be a principled exercise of the discretion if the elements taken under consideration don't meet that requirement. But the court can't assess what the discretion of the Crown would have yielded in a particular circumstance because then the court is put in the position of applying many different considerations that it is the role of government to consider. Why did Can you I accept, you? why did, oh sorry, just quickly to follow up, why did you accept in 506 the, the first bullet point, the frequency with which the Crown is required to turn its mind to the augmentation promise? Isn't that is offensive, equally offensive to? to, to I don't to, say that's equally offensive. I, I say is the answer that's going to be given every three months? Or is the answer going to be when there are significant changes in circumstance? Well, I, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but you, it's okay to ask the question and ask a court to answer the question? Yes, I say it is as long as it's, because that's the, the mandate that's been given to the court to look at, but that goes to the process that's going to be followed in order to arrive at the result. So, so my question then is, paragraph 506 is, ask, is, is directing the trial judge to invite further submissions on all of these issues from the government. And surely the governments would be able to say in terms of calculation of amounts or even frequency that in our view this is what would satisfy our obligations. This is what we think how the uh, uh, discretion should be exercised, and then the court would be able to comment. So I'm just wondering whether, by taking the approach that we should dictate what the remedies should be, you are foreclosing exactly the exercise that you're suggesting. Because if there is, there's an invitation for submissions from the parties as to what would be appropriate, both for the future and to redress the past, and doesn't that allow the very kinds of discussions and debates you've talked about that may very well result in very specific orders from the court depending on what happens in stage three. So, bottom line, why are we trying to close off the possibilities? Why are you in your submissions closing off the possibilities of what can be looked at in stage three through, um, um, through your rejection of the last two points in paragraph 506? I'm not rejecting the first one because that would be part of the judicial review process and the guidance as to principles that should be taken into consideration. It's the last two. The last two is what I, sorry, that's what I referred to. Because here it says the trial judge would invite further submissions from the parties on a calculation of amounts, if any, by which the Crown should have increased the annuities 
why shouldn't then the trial judge be able to hear from the Crown on how that discretion should have been exercised in the past and then review that? Because the discretion has yet to be exercised because the trial judge and the majority of the Court of Appeal wrote it out of the exercise. But we're assuming that you have direction on the appropriate interpretation, that we're going to stage three, that the trial judge needs to look at these issues, and the submissions of the Crown would include what amounts, if any, the Crown should have increased the annuities, is, is all about what should, how should the Crown have exercised its discretion in the past. Correct, and I say that's not a determination for the court, which is why I say both that and the next one don't belong there, because that's the discretion, the parameters, the guidance, the judicial review takes you towards the discretion exercised in accordance with the honour of the Crown. So you don't foresee that the Crown would go to stage three and say, in our view, this is an appropriate amount for the past, exercising the discretion of the Crown this would have been an appropriate uh, amount for the past. Well, you don't foresee that as a possibility. Well, you have to take it through its natural evolution, Justice Karakatsanis, because what happens is the Crown makes that submission, the respondents make their submission that that's wholly inappropriate and it should have been X, and you are joining the issue, the very issue that's before the stage three trial now, as to what the exercise of the discretion should have revealed. And I say that's not appropriate. Perhaps the best way to deal it's with that. Your, decision, your, your position is clear. Thank you. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. I understand your position. Very good. Is it sort of like the law of Ma in the law of mandamus that mandamus doesn't, can direct the, that the discretion be exercised, but not that it be exercised in a particular manner, except in very, very unusual circumstances, and that uh, a discretion, uh, as in this case, is multifactorial. It's not based on, uh, you say it's not based on a fair share, it's based on many, many considerations um, that uh, really aren't matters amenable for, they're not really specified in the treaty how the discretion is to be exercised. So it's fine to say that the discretion uh, should be exercised, must be exercised, and it must be done so honorably, but the actual criteria that go into that exercise of discretion, it isn't going to be a matter of quantification. This is the tax revenue, this is the, uh, the uh, other revenue, the royalties related from this land. These are the needs of other Ontarians. These are the infrastructure needs in the province. Those are all matters for the Crown to, to do and aren't amenable for an, to an adjudication. But the discretion must be exercised. So I wonder whether, as, whether that's a an analogy in terms of the law of mandamus that is sort of applicable here. It, it is in the sense that the direction is to direct the Crown back to address the discretion on appropriate principles, but not to do what you see at tab 11B of our, our condensed book, which is to make the sort of calculations that you see. Because the relief requested at the uh, stage three trial is set out in this appendix to the written submissions of the superior plaintiffs. And you'll see that that is directed in section two to essentially quantifying uh, an amount of $126.285 billion made up of two components. 
uh, rents, if you like, uh, and I won't go through the detail of the calculation, but essentially direct and indirect rents, uh, of which there will be an 84% share in favor of the First Nations, which would yield $65.2 billion, and a further $61 billion representing the loss of opportunity to engage in a process uh, and other components of an award, including an element for deterrence and considerations such as relative wealth and needs and disparities over time, however they may be calculated. But if you go on, you'll see that how the amounts are be, to be dispersed, although there's some mention in the submissions of uh, an individual annuity, you'll see that all of this is directed towards, as we look at paragraph four, amounts that go to the band council to be dealt with as it may direct by band council resolution. And then when you turn to future implementation, uh, paragraph six, we see that uh, the concept is added of spectrum and spectrum revenues, which could include airspace. Paragraph seven, the nature of the crown discretion over future implementation, that is the court and not the crown, crowns who have authority to determine what the future annuity augmentation amounts are from time to time in the event that there's no agreement, effectively reads out the discretion. A declaration uh, in paragraph eight with respect to how matters should proceed on, but at paragraph nine, that to ensure the bargain made is honored, any future disputes about implementation are dealt with on a correctness standard, not on a reasonableness standard, and not as a matter of judicial review. And then if you go over the page, paragraph 13 uh, has engagement on possible agreement on co-management of resources. Again, quintessentially a factor for negotiation, not for court adjudication. And the appropriate formula for sharing going forward, so absent some agreement, 84% of these amounts going forward, uh, doesn't accommodate any changes. I, I say that because it shows what the majority of the Court of Appeals said, which is there are unusual complexities which make this kind of trial unmanageable. And that's where a trial judge gets put in trying to deal with this. Except One of the things that comes through loud and clear by your reference to all this is that what is being sought is an order of the court that will frame in a very structured and somewhat specific way the future relationships between the First Nations and the government. This is to me not in the nature of a contract analysis. This is in the nature of a constitutional framework. And yet it is put to us that we should be deferential and not apply a standard of correctness to matters which are constitutional in nature. Because when we looked at a, a policy matter relating to the interpretation of contracts, we said we should defer to uh, the factual matrix in the making of a contract. And therefore, the argument is put, we should apply the similar logic to something which is constitutional in nature, which involves uh, uh, essentially nation-to-nation -nation structure, 
and 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 this court is being told that um, essentially hands off that the, the, the trial judge is going to determine this and 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 the, and the appellate court should just get lost so my next stop was standard of review <laughs> and uh, I say First, I wonder I, if I could interrupt just before you just go there small. because you're changing gears now. Obviously, um, you would concede that uh, granting a declaration must be an effective remedy. And you've told us what you think goes overboard in terms of what the, what the lower courts uh, uh, acceded to. I'm wondering if you could give us an idea of how you would tool up that declaration in order to make it effective. What are your parameters there? The parameters that I've set out in paragraph 102 of our factum, Justice Morrow. Okay. Those are the those are the parameters. Can we just go there for a moment? Then? Sure. Mm -hmm. And we really deal with it in paragraphs 100 through 102. Justice Morrow. Right. I mean, the, the first thing, and unless I'm missing something, you know, the parameters don't contain any deadlines, for example. That no, they you, don't. Right. And this has been many years in the making, the, the case that has come through the various court levels. Would that not be of concern in leaving it to the discretion of uh, the two governments? Well, first off, uh, we're partway along in solving that on a timeline which is, I think, beyond reproach in the sense that it was engaged in light of the Court of Appeal decision. But secondly, uh, I can understand the question with respect to certain time parameters and reporting. That's a fair point. But it has to be manageable and it has to be exercised in a way that uh, that the engagement occurs within a period of time, if that's the direction you're going. I'm not trying to put this on the Manana plan. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, this is a very serious and important matter that Ontario has to address with the First Nations. How, can I ask you just a factual question before you move to the standard of review? How many treaty beneficiaries are there currently in each of the... Uh, I can tell you, uh, my, my best information on that is that there are 12,639 Robinson Superior First Nation beneficiaries and 22,409 Robinson Huron beneficiaries. That's 12,639 on the former and 22,409 on the latter if we have the numbers accurately from the record. Mr. Griffin, before you go to the standard of review, I just want to come back to a question that my colleague Justice Kazera asked, and I ask you a question about from time to time, because in one of the conclusions of your factum, you ask us to say that the Crown has the obligation to address from time to time. Given the fact that you are objecting to the calculation, the damages in paragraph 506, you say it's not the business of the court to, to decide that. I'm preoccupied, I'm concerned about why do you not object to the first guideline in paragraph 506, I mean for the court to determine the frequency with which uh, the Crown is required to turn its mind. 
Why are you not saying that it should be left to the discretion of the Crown, as you say, for the calculation of damages? Because this frequency aspect has an impact on the amount of compensation, call it like you want, for the 150 years. I understand your answer for the future, but I'm concerned about the past. Well, the past is really now. Uh, so the, the, the frequency with which it should have been addressed in the past requires a historic examination of changes mm -hmm. in circumstances over time, but doesn't really get you to the result, which is what are we going to do about it now? And so you can go through that exercise. I, I don't object to the first part of 506 if it's qualitative, because that's the direction that it's going. But if it's every 30 days or 90 days or 120 yeah, days, then it's unworkable. Standard of review. I know you were looking forward to this. So I say on either standard, the conclusion that the majority of the Court of Appeal arrived at is an exigible legal error. Of particular note with respect to the standard of review, in the joint reasons, and I have them at tab 3A of our joint book. Just to be clear, when you say exigible legal error, you mean correctness? I'm saying on either standard. No, 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 no. But uh, yes, right, I'm yes. going yeah, to walk I'm you through you. it, Mr. Griffin, because I want to be clear on this. If the standard review is correctness, then it's correctness because it's a matter of law. If it's the application of law to the facts as found, as per Hausen and Nicolaisen, which I think is a very odd thing to do in this circumstance, it's palpable and overriding error, save where there is an extricable question of law, in which instance the standard of review with respect to the extricable question of law is correctness. Are you making an argument structured in that way? I'm making both arguments. Understood. And I say, when you look at tab 3A at page 11 of our condensed book, you will see that in summarizing the results, uh, the joint reasons conclude uh, that Justice, uh, Chief Justice and Justice Brown conclude the trial judge's interpretation is reviewable on a correctness standard. Lowers J.A. concurs. We know Justice Horrigan had a different view. But then if you look at the bottom, Pardue J.A. concurs with Horrigan J.A. But Pardue J.A. wrote concurring reasons with Justice Lowers. So she must have been applying a different standard, but there actually are no concurring reasons on the standard. And there's, that means you've only got one judge who applied the correctness standard and got to the result of the majority, and that was Justice Lowers. So is that what allowed them to come to, the, to that, their joint reasons? That he was saying to himself just what you've said? It doesn't matter if, I, I, I think the, it doesn't matter if you apply the standard of review of palpable and overriding error with the exception of extricable errors or the standard of review of correctness we can agree that in this case, is that, is that how they, they came to, because it, it is, speaking for myself, I found it perplexing to understand how they did come to the same result. Well, it's not patent in the reasons 
Justice Conserver, so I can't assist you on how they did it, but they did it on different standards. And you would have thought there would be a concurring set of reasons, however long, from Justice Pardue on the point if she came at it a different way. So you can't really tell how they got there. I say they got there the wrong way in the end, but I'll come to that. But uh, just even the, well, the, the Chief Justice and Justice Brown's reasons um, apply correctness, but they do identify for extricable errors of law, which would be the same analysis if you were going from a purely deferential as opposed to a correctness um, approach on the application of the law to the treaty. So I guess, isn't that common ground between all of them then? That there are extricable errors of law? And, and of course, there's a different approach on which standard of review applies, but under both standards of review, an extricable, extricable uh, error of law will get you to the same place. Isn't that what happened here? They, they, I'm looking at paragraph um, uh, 386. They actually say uh, the trial judge's interpretation of the treaty was the product of extricable errors of law in the applications of the treaty, principles of treaty interpretation. Uh, and then again, 416. I don't disagree with you as to the result. Just remember that the majority, Justice Lowers, Justice Pardue, didn't find any error in the interpretation of the treaty language. And it's not clear what standard between them they were actually applying. I agree with you that the minority identified four extricable errors of law uh, in the reasons. So I'm but saying- they, But they do say, just to follow up on Justice Caracut, at 1.30, after they say, to achieve the, re the result Ontario seeks, the countervailing evidence must go to the very core of the trial judge's reasoning and reveal it to be mistaken with respect, I think that's respect to you. <laughs> the countervailing evidence falls far short of demonstrating a palpable or overriding error of fact, an error of principle, or an error of law. So they're trying to kind of cover all the bases. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, they refer to them all. It's just a bit unclear who was applying which standard uh, in that exercise. I can't take it any farther than that, but it, in my respectful submission, it shouldn't give you a great confidence that in the overall approach to the provision that they were necessarily applying correctness uniformly across the three judges who upheld the interpretation. And I don't endorse Justice Horrigan's approach. He never deals with the actual language. He never addresses it in his reasons. So I just want to ask you about paragraph going into um, Justice uh, Horrigan's reasons, paragraph 544, where he talks about um, the submissions of uh, both different plaintiffs with regard to the fact that, um, and I'll just read, the superior plaintiffs, however, go a step further than the Huron plaintiffs and assert that the interpretation of the Robinson Treaties will have no precedential value because they are the only ones in Canada containing the augmentation clauses. So basically, then that there should be significant deference, and then later, he talks about West Moberly that both of them uh, rely on. So uh, what's your response to that argument? My response to that argument is this. <clears throat> this court has told us that a treaty between the Crown and First Nations is in a special category. It is a sui generis agreement. It attracts those special principles of interpretation by virtue of the fact of it arising to a constitutional level. 
And so, in my respectful submission, that the language may be different treaty to treaty, may be unique, doesn't change the result because the same standard should be applied with respect to a document of that nature. Secondly, it is dealing with the future for generations, both on Lake Superior and Lake Huron. So the future matters. But isn't there also a difference about the past? Because there's significant discussion in um, Justice Hurrigan's reasons with regard to historical versus a modern treaty when you're looking at the language. You really got to look at the context when you're looking at a historical treaty, uh, would you not? Yes, you are looking at the context, but Marshall tells us that you're looking at the context at the time that the treaty was made. But that's going to set the standard, not just for the past, but for the future. And in my respectful submission, that's what the Marshall principles are directed towards, addressing all of those key issues. But doesn't Marshall just set the two-step process for looking and interpreting the treaty, which, yes, would be correctness, but once you're looking at each of those steps, you're then going to palpable and overriding, and you're giving deference to the trial judge because of all the historical data and circumstances, not data, but the, the context of what occurred at that time. So that's a fair question, but you have to also think about uh, what the principles tell us in Marshall with respect to the role of the language plays, because there's no question but that the context is an important factor. But at what point does the context applied in the way the trial judge did overwhelm the language of the treaty? To find a common intention, in my respectful submission, that the language won't bear. It takes you back to the CU decision of, uh, of this court, in which it said at some point the, the language has to mean something. Mr. Griffin, doesn't, isn't really the issue, I mean, apart from passing Marshall and Satva and Van der Peet and Caron, isn't the issue as simple as this? The trial judge says treaties are part of the constitutional fabric of the country. Uh, treaty rights are constitutionally protected under Section 35. There is no other area of the law I'm aware of where appeal courts, uh, intermediate appeal courts, or uh, this court defers to the interpretation of constitutional rights of a trial judge. It's not to denigrate the importance and the important role that trial judges have, but it is a policy matter. In tr the interpretation uh, of constitutional rights is a matter where it is important to have, particularly where the rights go to the constitutional fabric of the country, where the matter is reviewable for correctness. Uh, and that uh, comes out of Vavilov, that comes out of Satva, comes out of any number of areas. It was obviously included in Marshall. But isn't the end, the end, isn't the end at the end of the day, rather than passing Marshall and Satva, it's all about that fundamental point that this is a constitutional, uh, constitutional rights. It is, and to go to Justice Rowe's question, I mean, Satva is, Satva never derogates from that. Caron never derogates from that. And the interpretation that's placed on agreements uh, is quite different than the interpretation standard that should be applied to a constitutional document. And I think the authorities are consistent in that respect. But isn't the difference that we're not necessarily looking at is this a constitutional issue, we're looking at the words and what the intentions of the parties are and that's why it sets you in a different realm of uh, a standard of review. No, uh, with respect, because what you're doing in the end is interpreting a document which is constitutional by its very nature. 
and therefore the obligations in the document are obligations that have to be interpreted in accordance with that standard. I'm and just, that's the sorry. importance of a sui generis treatment of treaty obligations, and that's the importance of not only the past but the future. Because what you're doing, much like Sattva talked about, Lightcore talked about, is setting the future in matters that are of real importance here. Because how this is going to get dealt with this year, next year, the year after, Justice Obama, so on, how is it going to get dealt with in 20 years or 25 years or 30 years when none of us are here, but we're grappling with how to address it? My question is, um, what do you say to AG Canada's uh, position that there really isn't much of a difference at the end of the day uh, in, in, a tr in this treaty interpretation case between a correctness or a deferential standard of review because in both cases there is, under Marshall, um, such an importance on the fact-finding of the trial judge because of the historical context and the need to f find as a fact what the common intention of the parties were uh, in that context. Uh, so whether you call it an extricable error of law, if there's an error of law in the application of treaty principles to the facts, given the, um, the primordial importance of fact-finding in a historical treaty, um, does it really make a big difference? And, and I guess that's Canada's position, and I'm just, I'm asking you the same question. It doesn't seem to me that if there is deference, palpable and overriding um, um, standard for findings of fact in a historical uh, treaty context where the facts are just so important to the interpretation, um, then there is a huge degree of deference to the trial judge. Well, on that theory... Barring, a, you know, a, an error of law. On that theory, Justice Karakatsanis, at some point you have context overwhelming the language and context overwhelming the other perspective? No, I said it was subject to an error of law. And if the, the position is here there was an error of law because, for example, the trial judge didn't consider a fourth interpretation that the parties put to her um, and that she, just, she did not consider that to see whether that was consistent with the common intention, and, then that's your submission. There's an error of law there. But that doesn't mean you put aside her findings of fact. I'm not asking for her findings of fact to be put aside. I'm exactly. not here challenging the findings of fact. I'm saying that the way in which she then attempted to reconcile the common intention with the language of the treaty led to a result which read out the deference and read out the discretion. No. Uh, I understand that. My question is, does it make a big difference in your case whether which standard of review applies? I said at the outset of the standard of review section that I think on either standard I get there, but I, I don't run away from the conclusion that I urge on this court that this court in turn should not relax the correctness standard for constitutional documents of this nature. I mean, there's... One can understand the logic of saying that a trial judge, a trier first instance, who has sat through many days of testimonies, examined documents, etc., etc., um, can, uh, and of course, is obliged to make findings of fact 
as to the circumstances surrounding the formation of the treaty, one might have deference toward that. But is that not distinct from having, bearing in mind or given that context, what then is the legal meaning to be given to the words of the treaty? That is a separate question from what is the factual context. And if you, if you say that there is, that the, the, the context and the treaty are the same thing, then I think you've, 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 you've kind of made treaties disappear. And, and is not the context in which the treaty is entered a tool for its interpretation? And is not the interpretation of the treaty a legal issue distinct from the findings of fact as to the context of its being entered? I don't disagree with that proposition, Justice Rowe, and, and that's the value of retaining the correctness standard, because ultimately that is the job of a court. Let, let me, Mr. Griffin, just follow up on Justice Rowe's question and ask you what your, your views are on the comments made by just Chief Justice Strathy and Brown on the place of contract in this kind of reasoning. I mean, contract exercises a a huge influence on the legal imagination. We all, we all know that. They make the point, and I'm wondering if you're, you would urge us to take, go down this same path. They make the point that a treaty is not a contract. It's an agreement between the Crown and an indigenous nation, and that contract is not the appropriate construct to use in examining common intention, which, again, lawyers, by dint of their um, training, typically reach for contract when they're trying to decide uh, on common intention. But that contract's the wrong idea. The Chief Justice Strathy and Justice Brown cite uh, Dwight Newman, the Professor Dwight Newman, who says, no, 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 it's not a contract, it's a covenant. And as such, it cannot, we cannot use um, the, the contractual-based reasoning in, in Sattva, for example. Frankly, they cite LEDCOR, but you could make a pretty good case that LEDCOR is not that much helpful either, because in saying that a standard form contract has special precedential value, it misses the same point. Would you urge us to follow that path? I, I would urge you to recognize in dealing with correctness as a standard that the nat by virtue of Section 35 of the Constitution, Constitution Act, a treaty is in a unique category as a constitutional document. It's not a contract. The, the fights that occurred in years gone by about interpretation of treaties of this nature on a contractual basis, in my respectful submission, aren't helpful because it does have a constitutional role. It is at that level. And whether you describe it as nation to nation, whether you describe it as a constitutional document or of constitutional import, that's what informs the standard of review. The court always has to retain that ultimate ability to interpret. But if a covenant, if, as you say, <clears throat> excuse me there, that it has a constitutional base, it's nation to nation, it's a covenant, etc. How can you say it's covered by action on the case then in, for purposes of limitation? It seems to me that there's an inherent contradiction between the characterization you're placing on it for these purposes versus your, limit, your new limitations arguments. 
I caught the word new. Yes. Uh, I say this, that in the time up to 1982, when these contracts were, sorry, when these treaties were being looked at and dealt with by way of an action on the case, they were pleaded in a way that was equivalent to a contract case. So historically, that was the context for them. Section 35 changed the landscape completely. Well, we have issues before us on that, but it, it, how then, it, it, with this rarefied notion of a constitutionally-based covenant, does it fall within the Limitations Act without some express inclusion that a treaty as a constitutionally-based covenant should be regulated by this provincial legislation? Because the 2002 Act referred back to the 1990 Act, and the 1990 Act didn't deal with it directly, that's true, but there was no amendment made. But the 1990 Act, I say on the language uh, of actions on a case, embraced everything that fell outside of the enumerated heads. Well, it just sounds to me as if you're seeking different characterizations on different legal issues. That's, that's a fair observation, but let me say it this way. I'm not here strenuously arguing for a limitation period, I'm saying that if you push yourself down the road of claims which sound in damages and equitable remedies of the type that cause the court to exercise the discretion that the Crown has, that that brings limitation legislation more to the fore. I accept what Manitoba Metis said, which is it's not an issue if you deal with it by way of declaratory relief. I'm not here trying to avoid the effect of declaratory relief, direct declaratory relief, that gives us the direction. I'm not trying to avoid that, and it's going to have to deal with a long period of time. So perhaps I can just spend a few minutes on the treaties, since they do bring us here. Uh, and I say that the correct interpretation is that of the minority. I'm not going to... Uh, do more than this, which is to say the interpretation was supported in argument uh, by the plaintiffs as an alternative. Uh, the trial judge addressed it, lost sight of it, I say. The majority never addressed it at all, and the minority, Chief Justice and Justice Brown, uh, took it on directly. And it was in that context that there are four extricable errors that come back to Justice Karakatsana's question were identified in the reasons, and uh, really paragraph 416 and following. And I'm not going to take it of those, they're in our brief, but I say that that interpretation is consistent with the principles we've been debating. I'm not going to go back over them now in this part of the argument, but I ask you to look at the provision, and it's at tab 3 of my condensed book. And the first one is the Superior Treaty. The second one is the Robinson-Huron Treaty. Some small word differences between them, but not material to this analysis. And so I look after the, the session of land in the first paragraph to the second paragraph. For and in consideration of the sum of 2,000 pounds of good and lawful money of Upper Canada. And I'm going to paraphrase and jump a bit, and for the further perpetual annuity of 500 pounds, 
delivered to the said chiefs and their tribes. And I come back to that because and their tribes is the individual distribution, and I'll come back to that. That's the first part of the grant. The second part of the grant is what's contained in the next paragraph. Further promises and agrees that in case the territory hereby ceded by the parties of the second part shall at any future period produce an amount that will enable the government of this province without incurring loss to increase the annuity hereby secured to them, then in that case the same, which I say is the overall annuity, shall be augmented from time to time. And that is the end of the grant. Where you go next are the provisos. And the first proviso says that the amount to be paid to each individual will not exceed the sum of one pound provincial currency in any one year, or such further sum as Her Majesty may be graciously pleased to order. That has to modify in my respectful submission, the overall annuity, because there's only one annuity described above. And this is merely dealing with the individual distribution. The graciousness clause does not refer to one pound because the grant is framed in terms of the lump sum of 500 pounds, not the individual payments. The result is that if the 500 pound sum is augmented, as contemplated by its various very wording, the benefit of the augmentation flows through to the individual payments because Her Majesty has enlarged the lump sum available for distribution. Now more money available. But it leaves that to be determined by Her Majesty in her discretion. The minority um, says that the trial judge didn't give meaning to Her, Majesty, to Her Majesty's graciousness provision and referred to the uh, evidence of uh, Elder uh, Rita Corbier, the translation, and then the testimony. And that uh, evidence doesn't say, uh, as I've read, looked at it, doesn't say uh, no meaning can be given to this. It simply says that it's to be exercised uh, generously because there is no word, just as there's no word for province, there's no word in Anishinaabe for pound, the idea of a currency, the pound. Similarly, there is no word for Her Majesty's graciousness. I wonder whether you read what the Court of Appeal did here in paragraphs 432 and 433 as making a finding that there was essentially a palpable and overriding error regarding the treatment of that evidence as to Her Majesty's graciousness and uh, Elder Corbier's, because it may be relevant depending on where we come to on the standard of review. I read it that way, but I'm wondering what your uh, submission is. I, I do, Justice Jamal, because Paragraph 433 actually sets out the entirety of that passage by Elder Corbier. The trial judge doesn't in her reasons, and in my respectful submission, that's what's being focused on by the minority uh, in addressing that particular point. In other words, the word graciousness may not have a, an exact translation, but the effect of it was there. And the trial judge, of course, made findings that that these things had been dealt with and no finding in this trial that the Anishinaabe did not understand the treaty. I don't mean to take you off your course of the text if you're still on it, so I can wait and ask you later. Would you? Yes, I Just would. Just because I'm a one-trick pony sometimes. Um, so I wanted to deal with the, the second proviso 
and provided further that the number of Indians entitled to the benefit of this treaty shall amount to two-thirds of their present number, which was then 1,240, to entitle them to claim the full benefit thereof. And when I say full benefit thereof, of course, it, I say it's the full annuity. And should their numbers at any future period not amount to two-thirds of 1,240, the annuity shall be diminished in proportion to their actual numbers. So I say uh, the effect of that particular proviso is the annuity must refer to the lump single sum. There's no rationale for penalizing individuals by annuity reduction simply because the population has declined and where the number of beneficiaries drops below 1240, the annuity may be diminished in proportion to their actual numbers because there's less money required to meet the individual payments, but it's still one annuity. That makes sense of the provisos, I say, because it makes them consistent both with the lump sum, and that really comes to paragraph 428 and 30, just ahead of the passage you referred to, Justice, Justice Jamal. But it gives meaning to the discretion, and it gives meaning to the diminution clause, because otherwise they're both read out of this exercise. And if you look at uh, the decision of the majority in the Court of Appeal at paragraph, I'm sorry, paragraph 203. And you see that, at tab 5B, you will see that the majority beginning at paragraph 198 goes through an exercise of breaking the promises in the treaty into pieces and then describes the diminution clause and then concludes at 203, structurally the textual breakdown shows plainly that the graciousness clause does not apply to the entire augmentation clause but only to the first proviso which sets the annuity for individuals. May I ask you this, though, in terms of uh, what Chief Justice Strathy and, and Justice Brown said about this fourth interpretive alternative, uh, and you're saying that that is your preferred interpretation, was this placed before Justice Hennessy? Uh, was it argued in, in, a, in a concrete way? Because I, I get contradictory understandings from reading the Court of Appeal as to how much this played as an argument before the trial judge? She adverted to it. Uh, the Court of Appeal minority describes uh, how she addressed it uh, in its But reason. that's not my question. My question is, she could, uh, did she advert to it? Was, it? was it a prominent part of the interpretation that Ontario was seeking in terms of the specific clause before the trial judge? I can't tell you that it was a prominent part of what Ontario was seeking because Ontario's interpretation at the time of the trial was that there was a $4 cap and that was it. In other words, that you didn't get past $4 per head. Right. Was it not right? put to her by the treaty plaintiffs as an alternative? But it's actually referred to by the treaty plaintiffs in their closing submission. Uh, <clears throat> the trial judge's comments on it are at paragraphs 455 to 456 where she says that it has a, a logic to it. She doesn't address it any further. Uh, it was referred to 
in the closing submissions of the superiors at Exhibit JJ at trial at paragraph 350, where they make that argument, and it was adopted by the Hurons in closing submissions, Exhibit HH, paragraph 757 to 760, as an alternative and referred to generally in the pleadings. Thank you. So that's the best guidance I can give you in that respect. But noting that I <coughs> have a shortness of time. My question. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to jump over that, Justice Karakatsanis. Please go ahead. Okay. Let's, um, accepting for, for a moment the uh, conclusion of the uh, Chief Justice and Justice Brown um, and the interpretation that you're urging on us. The, um, the reasons of, of the dissent on the interpretation uh, refer in a number of places to the common understanding, common intention of the parties. And I'm looking in particular at paragraphs 461 to 464, and then later at 498 and 502. But just to read out some of the, of the language, um, Reliance on the Queen's generosity as a generous leader who'd provide for her children's needs and would share in the bounty of their land. Um, that the Crown uh, expressly undertook to uh, revisit its promises and refresh annuities to address both sides' contemporary needs and interests in relation to the treaty land, ensure that the annuities reflected the value of the land to the extent the Crown would not incur a loss, and then, of course, liberal and just and renewal and relationships and, and uh, the four R's. Was not the kind of the finding of the dissent um, in terms of what the common intention required for the exercise of the discretion in accordance with the, the honor of the crown, the four R's and the common intentions? Did that not get you to a place which is not that far from where the trial, from what, from what the treaty plaintiffs were asking for, that those were the kinds of considerations that the Crown was obligated to take into account in exercising Her Majesty's graciousness. Do you I, accept that those are part of the considerations of this treaty promise? They're part of the consideration of the perspectives of those involved in making the treaty. I don't say that it goes so far as to say that is the treaty language. And I say that because if you look at paragraphs one and two of the Court of Appeal amendments to the judgment, you will see that those factors, types of factors, seem to be more in line with treaty interpretation than the perspectives that are brought to bear in dealing with the exercise of the discretion. And I don't try and escape from what the minority said with respect to that, but there is a distinction. Uh, I'm not quite sure I've got your answer on that. They, they actually avert specifically to common intentions and to those kinds of considerations as being relevant um, in this case, uh, including relying on the language of, of Her Majesty's shall make such orders in, in accordance with the Maj Her Majesty's graciousness. In, to that extent, yes, uh, they did rely on Her Majesty exercising her discretion in a way that was consistent effectively with the honor of the crown, as we now call it. As 
they specifically set out in those paragraphs? They set it out in those paragraphs. I think that's, that's a component of the factual matrix that was brought to bear as the perspectives of each. So I say to close on interpretation, the language which appears in the treaties, when you look at the two provisos and bring it back to the grant, in my respectful submission, just doesn't support the idea that there are two annuities. And I say it doesn't support the fact that there are two annuities because it reads out the discretion and reads out the effect of the provisos and especially the diminution provision. It doesn't make sense in my respectful submission. And I say that that is what reconciles to the best interests of both parties. And I've given you that uh, with respect to the argument that I've made so far. So I'm not going to go back through that, but I am going to stop for a moment just on the contextual evidence. And I ask you to go back and look at the diary of William Robinson as to what he describes as taking place in the course of the negotiations because it supports the conclusion that the minority reached. And that's at tab seven. And you will see it's extensive. And really from the, if you look at his second trip, which begins at page 44 and over to 45 and following, he sets out the steps in the negotiation that took place, including at uh, Saturday the 7th, if you like, on page 47, that the treaty was carefully read over and translated, made them fully comprehend all the provisions of it. They were all perfectly unsatisfied and said they were ready to sign that as the superiors. He goes on to talk about the exchange with the Huron chiefs, uh, which took more negotiation to get to a result. And he describes over at Monday the 9th, uh, the explanation of the treaty uh, with the Huron chiefs who were satisfied and ready to sign. The bottom of that, the ninth, had the treaty again read over aloud and all explained and they signed it, etc. And then he goes through the distribution of the individual treaty amounts where you'll see he goes to, on the 11th for instance, crossed over to Garden River and prepared to pay the Indians, paid Chungakusi and the Keokosis band about 300 and then a further band of 30 finished paying by 2 p.m. All of this was uh, individual annuity. But aren't you asking us to delve back into the evidence and reweigh it uh, after a trial judge who looks like she would be best placed to have weighed this originally after she had, uh, I think, 79 days of hearings, 20 expert reports, and 19 witnesses? Uh, no. And 30,000 pages of documents. No, I, I accept that there was a lot that went on in the course of that trial, but I'm also asking it to conclude that there was no finding by the trial judge that the signatories to those treaties didn't understand them. And secondly, it's consistent with that context. And the same context that you have in the orders in council would show that Robinson had a limited ability to deal with a payment on any kind of current basis. His report back as to the circumstances surrounding how he came to that particular clause, and that informs the ultimate conclusion, I say, that was reached by the minority. I think my, my colleague's point 
if I understand it correctly, is that the trial judge addressed her, her turned her mind, take the diaries. She yep. turned her mind to the diaries, paragraphs 438 and following. She looked at the diaries. And the, what you, the, the justices Lowers and um, Pardue, paragraph 233, go over that. And they say, the trial judge asked, what we, can we take from Robinson's many references in his diary? The bunch of us up here reading the diary with, with your help is, is, is not what we're trained to do. No, and I'm not asking you to do that. I'm only asking you to look at context is consistent with the conclusion that I've asked be drawn. That, and secondly, context in the treaty circumstances afterwards because nowhere in the evidence, let's take the negative. I mean, Justice Binney said in one case, looking through a glass darkly when you look that far back as to what it is you're actually seeing. But from my point of view, uh, what you're looking at is the absence of any evidence, as the minority talks about, of there being two annuities that read out the discretion in my respectful submission, or it was ever interpreted that way by anyone who had anything to do with it. I guess you're also relying on the post-treaty practice in terms of the distributions, 150-odd, whatever it is, years of uh, practice. That's what they that's did, and that's what I was going to come to. There's, noth there's nothing in the record to suggest that. So, in the few minutes that I have left, and my, my friends will rely upon uh, something which was attached to the... Uh, Superior's Factum, which was a report, a Harbor's report. It wasn't in the record before the judge. It hasn't been applied against tested evidence. Uh, I only go this far. I recognize that the COE decision says that things in an historical record may have a role and a value to play. But if, when you look at that document, if that's what they take you to, it doesn't actually help as far as what it says. It's inconsistent with the record of my respectful submission. So perhaps I can close this way. I say that the declarations that I seek are consistent with the honor of the Crown, achieve a result consistent with the honor of the Crown, which is not a cause of action. It doesn't guarantee a result, but it guarantees a process. The declarations have value in my respectful submission. We're here for that guidance. We're here for the proper interpretation so we have a platform to proceed ahead. And that will achieve reconciliation in my respectful submission. It's meaningful and it will take us to the next step. Step by step into the future. I say that what the respondents are after by way of the result that they want in this case really takes you one step further to the fair share analysis and ultimately the fiduciary duty analysis, which I say in, in, with great respect, uh, the majority of the Court of Appeal, the entire Court of Appeal dealt with appropriately. And I say that because it takes you even to a point where what's happened with the stage three trial gets completely recast in any event because now we have a different standard being applied. So with respect to the cross appeal, because I don't think I have much time at the end of the day tomorrow to deal with it, I'll just say this. 
Once you arrive at the crown discretion for augmentation, in my respectful submission, it's inconsistent with fiduciary duty on either head. It's not an ad hoc fiduciary duty, and it's not a sui generis fiduciary duty. And it would be overwhelmed by the competing and legislative and executive duties that a government has. Is, is it not simply a manifestation of the honor of the Crown that the Crown diligently and faithfully carry out its treaty obligations? Is it more complicated than that? Well, it, it's not more complicated than that in the sense that the honor of the Crown requires that, but uh, the difference is you don't elevate the interest that you're protecting over your own interest and the other interests that you have to deal with. Which is what you have to do in a fiduciary situation. Exactly. And so I say that, that just doesn't take you to the right place. Now I may hear more on fiduciary duty, so I'll stop there and just say <clears throat> with respect to limitation period, uh, I will simply say I adverted to it slightly in answer to your question, Justice Martin. I'm not here urging that as a result, but the farther you get into coercive personal remedies here, the closer you get yourself to a limitation period having utility. I say the declarations do the job. Limitations aren't an issue. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break. Fifteen minutes. Please be seated. Mr. Gabo. Chief Justice, Justices, my name is David Nawagabo. I'm Nishnabe, and I speak Nishnabe Mwin. My Nishnabe name is Gijiganang, which means day star, and my dodem is Maingan, which is wolf. I am counsel for the Lake Huron Nishnabe respondents. I will be speaking about the Nishnabe perspective as it relates to treaty interpretation. It's important that we turn our minds to the Anishinaabe perspective because in order to determine the common intention in 1850, the trial judge needed to have and did have a complete and well-informed understanding of the Anishinaabe perspective. My co-counsel, Ms. Boyce Parker, will be responding to Ontario's submissions. I want to say before I start that we've, uh, among the respondents, decided on an allocation um, Canada has graciously agreed to take 10 minutes of the 90 minutes and the two First Nation groups will have uh, 40 minutes each. So between um, Ms. Boyce Parker and myself, I'll have 20 and, and she'll have 20 minutes. Um, 
Another matter I wanted to address briefly before I get started is the issue of the potential settlement uh, between the Anishinaabe of Lake Huron, uh, the, res the Rastul respondents, and, uh, and the Crowns. My friend was quite right that we have a proposed settlement. However, it took getting to, to the, actually get, it took um, a decision from the Superior Court and the Ontario Court of Appeal before we got into serious negotiations. I wanted to make that point clear. So then to start my uh, submissions, for the Anishinaabe, the heart has great significance in our teachings. Could I ask, sorry Mr. Nawagal, could yes. I ask about the settlement? As I understand from just from what's in the public domain, it's, it's retrospective only, it isn't prospective. That's correct. Is that, so, that, that so this, is correct, to, Justice Jamal. Okay. For the Anishinaabe, the heart has great significance in our teachings, in our relationship with the land and in our interactions with one another. When we speak on matters of great importance, we speak directly from the heart. The word for heart in Anishinaabemwin is odeh. It is at the root of many Anishinaabemwin words, as you will see. In my submissions, I intend to speak from the heart directly to the issue at the heart of this case, which is whether, as argued by Ontario, the augmentation promise in the treaty was capped at one pound or four dollars per individual and gave the Crown discretion to augment that annuity where the territory generated enough wealth to increase the annuity without incurring a loss. The question here is whether among the various inter interpretations of the common intention at the time of the treaty, Ontario's interpretation is the one that best reconciles the interests of the parties in 1850. The answer to this question from the Anishinaabe perspective is simply no. As the trial judge found, the Anishinaabe envisioned a treaty that allowed them to collectively sustain themselves from the land. Not as individuals, but as a nation in a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with the Crown. They envisioned an ongoing spiritual and economic connection with the land and a sharing relationship with the Crown based on respect, responsibility, reciprocity and renewal principles which Ontario has accepted. According to the trial judge, the Anishinaabe understood that the treaty was not meant to be a single transaction, but an ongoing relationship which would require the treaty partners to meet regularly around the council fire to renew their treaty relationship. Nothing in the record, the evidence or the undisputed factual findings of the trial judge supports Ontario's radical notion that the Anishinaabe knowingly and effectively conceded to the Crown complete arbitrary and unilateral power to set and to limit annuity increases, even if the lands proved profitable. Mr. Nawabagabo, can I just ask you, sorry, to your left. Pardon? Just to your left. Um, can you just talk to us, because from where you started, um, Justice uh, Hennessy talks at paragraph 419 about the source of uh, Bima Dizewin, and if you could just talk to us about uh, the, the source of that, please. Bimadzewin is a Nishnabe word, and I have built that into my submissions. Uh, it's, 
It is one of the um, overarching principles of, of uh, Nishnabe Adzuin, which is the Nishnabe way, or Nishnabe way of life, the Nishnabe worldview. It comes from the Creator. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the mystery of life. It's the thing that we should all be thankful for because it is life. That's the word, that's what Bemadzuin means. <clears throat> um, so the nothing on the record, as I said, um, nothing in the record, the evidence or the findings of fact of the trial judge supports Ontario's radical notion um, for a complete arbitrary and unilateral power being given uh, to the province or to the crown rather. Ontario's interpretation is entirely inconsistent with the heart of the treaty relationship. There are challenges to, the un to understanding the Anishinaabe perspective, which you face and which the um, trial judge faced, including obvious cultural and linguistic differences, as well as the fact that the treaty promise was ignored uh, for 150 years, and you mentioned the practice has been 150 years where payments have been made to individuals, but that's because the treaty promise was ignored shortly after it was signed. But also, what was lost was the record of the speeches that the Anishinaabe gave at the Treaty Council. Those were lost by the Crown. In spite of these challenges, the trial judge engaged in the task of uncovering the Anishinaabe perspective with skill, balance, and open-mindedness. For 78 days of hearings, she directly observed the elders as they expressed their truth, which is Odebwewin. Again, it's the heart. Odebwewin in Nishnabemwin. She observed as Elder Fred Kelly lit his grandfather pipe on the witness stand. He sang a pipe song and gave lengthy but abridged teachings about the pipe and how the Nishnabe word for law derives from the pipe ceremony. Elder Kelly gave evidence about the different orders of Nishnabe laws and their application to treaties. The trial judge also heard the testimony of Elder Rita Corbier as she explained how it was not possible to do a verbatim translation between Nishnabe and the English language. She explained the seven sacred laws or grandfather teachings, one of one of which is a de boewin, truth. Aside from the elder testimony, the trial judge reviewed thousands of pages of expert reports and historical documents and listened to the testimony of nearly a dozen experts, many, um, dozens of experts, uh, many on the Nishnabe perspective. All this gave the trial judge insight into the heart of the Nishnabe perspective what we call Nishnabe Adzuin, which means, as I said, the Nishnabe way. Elder Kelly, in his testimony, talked about the two organizing principles of life, systems and governance. Imadzuin, which means life, that everything is alive and everything is sacred. The other is Jeadzuin, which means the way of the creator, generosity. It encompass, encompasses the seven sacred laws. Elder Corbier gave testimony on the significance of the strawberry in ceremony because it shaped 
like a heart in Nishnabem when it's called Odeh Amin, a heart berry. She said the strawberry plant is like, with its many runners, is like the heart is to our body and its many organs. It's what keeps us alive. This reminds us of the interconnected nature of our world, Bimadzuin. Odeh is also embedded in our word for fire, Ashkodeh, which is the metaphor for governance. In 1850, it organized the system of Nishnabe governance through council fires. The trial judge heard extensive evidence about the council fire as a site of governance. The British Crown not only understood and respected the system of diplomacy, it adopted it and in making and maintaining treaty relationships. Ode is also embedded in relationships. One example is do Adem, I said my Dodem is Maingan or wolf. That's the Anishinaabe clan system. Another example is the word for community, Odenak, the place of the heart of the people. The trial judge heard extensive evidence about the importance of relationships to Anishinaabe Adzuwin and that maintaining relationships required adherence to the principles of respect, responsibility reciprocity and renewal. The trial judge learned about the reciprocal use and understanding of kinship metaphors by the Nishnabe and the Crown to delineate their mutual responsibilities and obligations of care. Kinship terms like great father or great mother were not literal and did not imply subservience or authoritative power. Rather, they implied care and responsibility. Now that I've laid out some of the basic aspects of Anishinaabe Adzu, and I want to discuss the nation-to-nation -nation relationship between the Anishinaabe and the Crown, or the British Crown, because it's the nature of that relationship that deeply informed the trial judge's findings regarding the Anishinaabe perspective going into treaty negotiations. As the trial judge noted, the relationship predated the Robinson Treaties and had its foundations in the Covenant Chain Alliance, dating back to 1763 and 1764. The situation was completely different in that period prior to 1850. As you can see from the map uh, dated 1838, and it's at our condensed book, tab seven, I won't ask you to turn to it, there was no Ontario it was Upper Canada, a British colony. There was no settlement north of Lake Simcoe, as expert James Morrison said in his testimony. The territory was occupied 99% plus by the Anishinaabe. He called it Anishinaabe country. The relationship that the Anishinaabe had was with the British crown, and it was a military alliance. In the quest for dominance over North America, the British and the French sought alliances with indigenous nations. The British allied mainly with the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations Confederacy, and the French allied with the Anishinaabe and other indigenous nations. After the conquest over the French, the British had to make peace with France's former French, former indigenous allies. To do so, 
the British Crown issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and extended the Covenant Chain Alliance to the Anishinaabe and their allies at the Niagara Council in 1764. Up until that time, the Covenant Chain Alliance was with the Haudenosaunee and was memorialized by the Tuaro Wampum. At Niagara in 1764, Sir William Johnson gave the Anishinaabe the Great Covenant Chain Wampum Belt and the 24 Nations Wampum Belt. Photos of the belt are found at the condensed book, Mark Condensed Book, Tab 4, and replicas are here in the courtroom. Held by members of, our, of the Anishinaabe leadership, Duke Pelche and Chief Angus Toulouse. I understand that the two-row wampum belt is featured in the new Supreme Court, Supreme Court heraldic emblem, which demonstrates the enduring nature of the symbol of the covenant chain. Both of the belts that Johnson gave to the Anishinaabe feature images of individuals holding hands with hearts at their centers. These individuals are equals in the treaty relationship and interdependent. The speech Sir William Johnson made to the Anishinaabe and other Western nations at Niagara is at tab two of our book. When Johnson presented the belts, he said, I now present you with the great belt, the great covenant chain wampum, by which I bind your Western nations together with the English and desire you to take hold, take fast hold of the same and never let it slip, to which end I desire that after you have shown this belt to all nations, you will fix one end of it with the Chippewas at St. Mary's whilst the other remains at my house. You'll note the specific reference to the Anishinaabe whose council fire was at Sault Ste. Marie. Then Johnson said, I exhort you then to preserve my word in your hearts. In the years before 1850, speeches and petitions of the Anishinaabe chiefs repeatedly made reference to the heart. In 1846, Shingwakus closed his petition addressing the Great Father, saying, I shake hands with him in my heart on behalf of myself, my young men and the women of, and children of my tribe. By 1849, when Shingwakus was clearly starting to lose patience, he expressed in a very public speech to the Governor General in Montreal, Father, we begin to fear those sweet words had not their birth in the heart, but that they lived only upon the tongue. The trial judge heard many examples of the reciprocal use and understanding of such metaphors, and she made undisputed findings about how they informed the party's intentions and interests at the Treaty Council. However, their use did not accept an understanding or acceptance of particular British laws and concepts uh, by the Anishinaabe leaders at the time. In his letter to the Lords of Trade, in October 1764, and this is at tab three of our book, Johnson explained that indigenous nations, quote, cannot be brought under our laws that they did not share nor submit to the British understanding of subjection or sovereignty and that there would be severe consequences if attempts were made to impose this. Ontario asserts that the graciously pleases clause gave unilateral discretion to the Crown 
to set the treaty annuity. Um, and that paragraph 88 of its factum uses the evidence of Elder Rita Corbier to support this interpretation. Ontario states the Anishinaabe understood a gracious exercise of discretion if the Queen, and quoting uh, Elder Corbier, has a good heart and has a mind to do so. This is a selective and distorted reading of Elder Corbier's testimony. It has three problems. First, there's no evidence uh, of Rita Corbier saying that graciously pleases means discretion, or for that matter, unfettered discretion. Nor did Ontario in its cross-examination ask Elder Corbier if that's what it meant. Secondly, she makes clear in her testimony it's not possible to do a verbatim translation from Nishnabeh went to English and states, graciously pleased, could not, trans uh, could not translate that. I don't know if that's an expression when you address the Queen. Thirdly, Ontario misrepresents what, what having a good heart means to the Nishnabeh. She goes on in her testimony to refer to the heart teachings, and I quote, and the way the Nishnabeh lived with the seven teachings, to be generous, to be kind, to be truthful, and all of those good teachings, good heart teachings that were given to us. If they live those, then they would also expect the leader, the queen, to be living the same way. According to the heart teachings of the Anishinaabe, it would have been totally inconceivable for them to give the crown complete unilateral discretion over Anishinaabe lands and the future ability of communities to sustain themselves from the land individually and collectively. That's not what having a good heart means. The single most defining trait for the Anishinaabe, the heart of the Anishinaabe perspective, is the inherent connection with the land, which infuses every aspect of Anishinaabe life, particularly relationships. And I'm going to review the, um, the four R's. In the mid-1840s, the Crown violated the proclamation and the principles of the Covenant Chain Alliance by allowing mining exploration to take place. The trial judge found the central goal of the Anishinaabe in 1850 was to renew their long-standing treaty relationship with the Crown by realigning uh, it in, according, in accordance with the four R's. In other words, Anishinaabe's purpose was reconciliation. The evidence and historical records show that each of these principles were actively and consistently demonstrated by both parties for nearly a century prior to the treaty. So the first principle is respect. It means that the treaty parties acknowledge the autonomy and jurisdiction of each other. The Crown had a deep understanding of this principle. The trial judge found that the treaty council, at the Treaty Council, the Anishinaabe were seeking respect for their authority their relationship with the land and their governance. Responsibility means the treaty partners have obligations to care for each other in times of need. These obligations were care, of care were defined through shared metaphors and the diplomatic discourse of the covenant chain. From 1764 to 1850, the Anishinaabe had repeatedly fulfilled their responsibility of care by sending Anishinaabe warriors to fight for the crown when called upon. For example, Shingwakus fought as, a, as an ally of the Crown in the War of 1812, as did many Indigenous warriors. 
Reciprocity means the treaty partners have a shared expectation that exchanges within that relationship are made with the understanding that a gift will be returned by a gift of equal value. Citing the evidence of Dr. Dribben, the trial judge noted that the Anishinaabe through the treaties, quotes, were giving the greatest gift of all, the land and water over which countless generations of their ancestors had presided. The source of bimadzuwin, which is to say life in the fullest sense of the term. Renewal means the treaty relationship is intended to be both ongoing and adaptable. The shared expectation is that the parties will meet as often as needed to discuss how their needs are evolving and how the treaty relationship should adapt to unforeseen circumstances and changing circumstances. One of the ways in which the four principles were, uh, were adhered to was through gift giving. From 1764 to 1858, the Anishinaabe and the Crown met on a regular basis around the council fire to hold and exchange gifts. Reciprocal gift exchanges enabled resource uh, sharing and mutual interdependence. The factual findings of the of the trial judge on the Anishinaabe perspective lead inexorably to the conclusion that the only possible interpretation of the common intention of the parties that best reconciles the interests of the parties at the time of the treaty was a plan for sharing the wealth of the Anishinaabe territory on a collective basis in a mutually beneficial manner, as long as doing so did not incur a loss. This finding was upheld by a majority of the Court of Appeal. Ontario does not take issue with most of the Anishinaabe perspective, yet it categorically rejects the finding that the treaty's purpose involves sharing wealth uh, produced from the territory and continues to argue for a fundamentally transactional understanding. I'm sorry to interrupt you, if I may. Ontario is saying that the trial judge uh, made an error uh, when she tried to reconcile her findings of fact with the specific language of the treaties. What do you answer to that? Well, she didn't make uh, any, any palpable and overriding errors. Her, her findings of fact, including the treaty interpretation about the common intention were found, were based totally on the, on the intentions of the parties. And what I've given you is the, certainly from the Anishinaabe perspective, um, it's firmly grounded because what the relationship was a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. How could then it become one which was um, strictly individually based? Um, we say in our submissions that that's not something that fits within the nation-to-nation -nation relationship. It's also not one that fits within Xinhua um, Kons' view of or vision of the Anishinaabe uh, uh, way going forward into the future. And can I take what, from what you're saying uh, from the nation to nation and the focus on sharing, the trial judge also came up not with just an idea of mutuality but a fair share. And can you direct some of your um, remarks to where does the word fair come from in terms of the Anishinaabe in, uh, intention and the Crown intention? Well, it's, it's actually the, the word fair came from our pleadings. And uh, to be honest, but you know, we're trying, in fairness, trying to come up with 
a way in which it could be interpreted as being not, uh, being consistent with the Nishnabe way and the teachings of the good heart that um, Elder Rita Corbier gave, those are all teachings that are consistent with the principle of fairness. Certainly, certainly um, in equity we hear fairness and I think it's similar in a lot of ways. Justice Jamel. <clears throat> so Ontario argues like the minority at the Court of Appeal that there's only one annuity under the treaty which was to be and in fact was historically distributed to its, in its entirety to the individual members of First Nations. According to this interpretation, the annuity is an aggregate of all payments made to individual members. This interpretation needs, leaves nothing for collective purposes. And there are problems, there are problems with this. It's at odds, as I said, with the nation-to-nation -nation nature of the uh, uh, treaty relationship. These treaties were not collective agreements that prescribed salary levels and, uh, for individual uh, employees. Secondly, it's also inconceivable, as I said, that Xinhua <coughs> Kungs, who took a lead role in advocating for the rights of the Anishinaabe, that he would have forgotten about the, the, the greater good, the, the collective interests. The trial judge described him as a leader with a vision for his people. Putting him back in 1850, this chief was in his 70s at this time, traveled back and forth to Montreal and Toronto to, to meet with the Governor General. He was persistent and he had a vision, he had care for his people. He was concerned the life, the way of life was changing and he wanted to make sure that, that his, the future of his people was gonna be sustainable. What do you say about the uh, consideration clause which talks about the annuity being paid to said chiefs and their tribes? Uh, because that does show a nation to nation yes, collective. Yes, it does. And then the, the idea that the uh, reference to the individuals in the augmentation clause is actually, uh, as the minority called it, a soft cap, a way of measuring uh, the, the, the amount that was to be paid. I mean, because on one reading of the treaty, the uh, treaty provides for a payment to, a payment nation to nation. What the nation does with that money uh, is for it to decide whether it uses it for the community, whether it gives it to individuals, um, but it's to be measured by the amounts that would be available for each individual because the numbers can go, go up and go down. So I don't know if, I don't read the consideration clause as being inconsistent with the notion of a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. Well, it is if, you, if, if it means what the minority at the Court of Appeal meant, that the, that the global annuity consists of an aggregate of all individual payments. There's nothing left for the collective. That's short-sighted because it didn't see the possibility that in 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, maybe the territory would actually generate some wealth, which was the, the, the interpretation that, that the trial judge gave as a result of the evidence that she heard, which are, in our submission is the only correct uh, interpretation. I want to close with uh, <coughs> a uh, passage from the Royal Commission. 
So I will conclude uh, on this point. Um, as the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People said in its report, measures to support, and this is present day, measures to support economic development must reach and benefit individuals, but some of the most important steps that need to be taken involve the collectivity. For example, regaining Aboriginal control over decisions that affect their economies, regaining, regaining greater ownership and control over the traditional land and resource base, building institutions to support economic development, and having non-Aboriginal society honour and respect the spirit and intent of the treaties, including their economic provisions. Miigwech, those are my submissions. Chief Justice, Justices, the Huron plaintiffs say that the augmentation promise imposes both a substantive obligation on the Crown to share the wealth of the treaty, ter treaty territory with its treaty partner and an obligation to engage in a process to determine whether such an increase is warranted. And we say that the duty of purposive and diligent implementation requires that both aspects of those treaty promise be implemented in a way that's consistent with the principles that govern the treaty relationship as a whole. The four R's, as they've been referred to today, and the Crown's commitment to being both liberal and just. Now, we recognize those terms sound pretty general at the outset, but that's what legal terms are. They start out general, whether it's the reasonable person in tort law, or it's clean hands in equity, or its fundamental justice in constitutional law, they start out at a level of generality, and as you apply them to particular cases, they, they have more substance, they have more particularity. But, we they, say but that they must be, they must, in order for us to operate as an adjudicative body, as opposed to a legislative body, those general concepts must be given effect in accordance with settled law, with recognized principles, and with a coherent methodology. They don't hang in the air, and we do not find in an intuitive sense how to give them effect, or if we do, we cease to be judges. I entirely agree. We don't want the judges just having their intuition tell them what these things mean. For one thing, we need to have the Anishinaabe perspective about what they mean. And what we're doing here by talking about, is it just crown discretion or is it some sort of judicial apportionment? We're erasing the Anishinaabe from this entire equation. The Anishinaabe and the crown together should have been for the last 170 years working out what these principles mean and how they apply on the ground as the territory got developed, as revenues and expenses got more complicated. They should have been continuing to meet every year. They were meeting every year up until 1850 to talk about their relationship. And the Anishinaabe would have expected that to continue. And the parties should have time now 
to work out what that means with evidence about the Anishinaabe perspective, with argument about how it connects to, to common law principles. They haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. But it's way too early to say that's impossible to do in a principled way. They, have a, they need to have an opportunity to implement this treaty through discussion and discourse. That's what the Anishinaabe believe in, in terms of how they implement a treaty, discourse. Will there be times when they don't agree? Probably, and they'll have to come to the court, but then the court will have a specific question before them about the implementation of the treaty. And you'll be able to see whether or not these principles get you there. Now, I agree, it may be that the parties themselves or the court in some future case may say, you know, this part of the implementation clause, we think there is crown discretion there. Because really discretion just means there's more than one right answer. And so you might say, we believe that there's a, crown discretion that's limited by these principles in order to determine some aspect of implementation. But that's a very different thing than what's happening now. Ron Terrio says, we have a complete and unfettered discretion because actually there's no treaty right to share in the wealth of the territory. Well, that's I think, what they're saying. I, think I, I agree You'd have a, you have a fair point that it's not an unfettered right to uh, decide whatever they want and then uh, uh, that's not a fair, liberal, just. But as between a $10 billion amount and $126.2 billion, how is a trial judge to adjudicate that what is liberal, what is just, what is an exercise of Her Majesty's generosity, or graciousness, not generosity, graciousness, how is that going to be a legal determination uh, rather than a, you know, a number plucked out of the air? How, so, is a how is a court equipped? to make that determination, because presumably that's, that's the claim that's been put before us, $126.2 billion, and that's, uh, I think that's a, a difficult thing for any judge, any trial judge or appeal judge to do. Thank you. I, I think it's important to, to distinguish between what this treaty, the framework for the relationship that this treaty has going forward, how it means for the parties to interact, and how the court goes about calculating compensation for a failure to do that for 170 years. Those are two different questions, right? The, the, it, it, there are difficult questions associated with calculating those damages. I wasn't at stage three. I'm sure that she got a lot of evidence, and if she makes a mistake, they'll come to you. But that's an opportunity to start trying to work out the compensation for the whole thing. But that's different than what the parties are going to do day to day in terms of implementing their treaty. My friend's suggestion that you can't have compensation for 170 years of a failure just because there may be no um, certain amount that you can say would have been payable, that's, that's not the law at all, right? I mean, in fiduciary duty, we don't know for sure what would have happened if someone had exercised their fiduciary duty correctly, but we provide damages, we provide compensation if they fail to do that. In the Southwind case, that's what this court did. So the principles for figuring out compensation for ignoring it for 170 years are one thing, but how the parties expected their relationship to go forward is another thing. And that is a perfectly doable thing for them to sit down and try and figure out piece by piece by piece what this treaty requires and come to the courts, or they may decide they need a different dispute resolution system. They may decide to set up something that applies Anishinaabe law and common law together. And they'll say, we'll go there first. But you need to let them sort it out. 
in terms of going forward, not in terms of the past. Ontario doesn't get to, the Crown doesn't get to ignore its treaty obligations for 170 years and then come and say, just give us a bit more time. And, and I, think it's, I think it's important that this court sort of reject that approach because this idea that, that this is a uniquely difficult thing for the courts to do or something, it really risks putting these treaty rights back into the realm of sort of a political trust. They're less than legal. But the courts have, this court said reconciliation is not going to be achieved in the courtroom. And I would have thought the settlement that has been negotiated, uh, proposed settlement with the uh, Huron for $10 billion, is a more uh, sensible way of proceeding rather than having a, uh, an adjudication of what is uh, Her Majesty's graciousness in a courtroom um, at this, what is a number? Uh, is an appropriate exercise of discretion. When I think that discretion can be exercised in a vast way, it can be exercised with a smaller number and a much larger number. And the, and the crowns, the crowns, plural, will need to weigh many, many different considerations. But it's not something that, if the treaty had a formula, it would be one thing. But it doesn't have a formula. It says Her Majesty's graciousness. So we're left with, uh, you know, without the judicial tools to fix what the number is. Well, uh, and and that reconciliation for a perpetual relationship isn't going to be achieved through an adjudication of a number. And that's why uh, negotiation is so important and one of the treaty beneficiaries has reached a resolution. Uh, on the courthouse steps, they've reached a proposed, proposed resolution. And the idea that they would have reached that proposed resolution if the Crown was not looking at an order for damages is, I, I, I don't think you can even contemplate that that would have happened. It never happened before. It was right when we were about to start stage three, right? So, so why, should these, why should these kinds of rights not be given enough recognition to warrant an award from the court? What message does that send? about the importance of these rights and the people who hold them. Now, you say it's a matter of Her Majesty's graciousness. Well, that's assuming the trial judge was wrong in her interpretation. And we say in order to do that, you would actually have to set aside a whole slew of factual findings by the trial judge. Because um, regardless of what standard of review you pick, her factual findings can only be set aside on the basis of palpable and overriding But, but isn't, it, isn't, it, I mean, isn't it written into the text of the treaty? Is the text of the treaty supposed to just poof? No, no, the text, but, no, but her interpretation was that the Crown promised we shall increase the collective annuity, and it is a collective payment. And just to correct what the Crown keeps saying, it wasn't always paid to individuals. At the beginning on the Huron Territory, it was paid as a collective to the band, and they could spend it as they, they wanted to as a, as for corporate development, if you want to say that, right? And then it says, but no more than $4 will be paid to each individual. So that's, we say, what she said, was that was a matter of limiting individual distributions out of the collective annuity. And that's where Her Majesty's graciousness applied. Her Majesty's graciousness, she could decide to let more go to the individual. Whereas we say, you know, that the, the, the initial, it shall be increased, must be done. And that must be done in accordance with those principles, respect, responsibility, and renewal. Now, even if you were to say she erred in that, we say 
you can't say she erred in that without overturning her findings of fact about the party's intentions, and nobody's demonstrated a palpable and overriding error there. But even if you say the other structure of the treaty in the sense that Her Majesty may be graciously pleased to order is the right way to do these increases, that is still not a unfettered and unreviewable discretion. It is a discretion bounded, we say, but that's by a the general man. principles. I beg your pardon, that's a straw man. Your, your friend, Mr. Griffin, has not said that. He, well, you're, you're, you're arguing against a position which has not been put forward. You're saying to us that the position of Ontario is that we can, we, that the Ontario, the Crown and Right of Ontario can fully uh, conform to its treaty obligations by, in its discretion, giving you nothing, giving your client nothing. He has said exactly the opposite. He has said that this is a solemn commitment and that acknowledges that there is a, a, has been a serious failure in terms of the honor of the Crown, that there's an ongoing obligation that is meaningful, that what we're talking about is very significant sums of money, and you're simply mischaracterizing his position. Well, let's talk about Ontario's position. Thank you. Because it has been a moving target. In its pleadings at the first level, before we started the trial, they said there's no obligation to do anything. There's no obligation to turn our mind to anything over X $4. We can just ignore it. By the end of the trial, after listening to all the evidence, they said, well, well perhaps there is an uh, obligation to engage in a process. And the process has to be consistent with the honor of the Crown. But the decision we make, that's unreviewable. And they, and they, somewhere along the line, also said that it should be indexed. Then at the Court of Appeal, even, they did not say, they did not accept that the, the four R's had anything to do with the calculation of, of um, any uh, increase to the annuity. They said that the parties had not agreed in the common intention that any particular principles were relevant. And if you look at their factum, in this court, they still don't mention any of those principles. It is only in their reply to the interveners, their last factum filed in three levels of court, that they talk about respect, responsibility, and renewal. My friend said it today, but when he pointed you to paragraph 102, which he says are the parameters that he wants to put in the declaration to guide the discretion, they're not there. It's just erasing the Anishinaabe side of this. So even if you say it has to be done in Her Majesty's graciousness, we say Her Majesty's graciousness has to be exercised in accordance with those principles. They, they say, well, we'll consider them. We, we think they're important, we'll consider them, as long as they don't change their mind again, I guess. We'll consider them. But we say it's more than they have to consider them. We say, Decisions made pursuant to implementing the treaty have to be consistent with those principles. Ontario acts like it's a government resource revenue sharing program that they can just decide how much they want to give. But that's not what this is. It's a solemn promise. It's, it's, the trial judge found a major reason why the Anishinaabe decided to share their land. And we say that any interpretation that, that doesn't involve a requirement that they exercise any discretion that they have in accordance with those principles, whether those principles are imposed because of the duty of diligent implementation or because they're imposed pursuant to a fiduciary duty, because we say the sui generis fiduciary duty could be, do basically the same thing here. Anything that doesn't honor that 
and give the ability of the courts to review it, difficult as it may be, doesn't honor the Anishinaabe's participation in this process and isn't about the mutuality that is inherent in the treaty relationship and won't further reconciliation. You've uh, equated the fiduciary relationship with a diligent, <coughs> the duty of, uh, diligent, diligent implementation of the treaty. Is that accurate in law? Well, we, we have filed a cross-appeal on the fiduciary duty um, issue. We actually uh, think that probably if you, if you agree that the duty of diligent Im implementation does what we say it does, we don't need the fiduciary duty. But we do need some way to structure what the Crown is doing. The fiduciary duty and the duty of diligent implementation both arise out of the honor of the Crown. They're both about protecting this relationship and making sure that the Crown applies honorably. So it's not, it's not um, there's no problem in them having a similar content if they're applied here. But we do think that there is a lot of merit in developing the duty of diligent and proposive implementation in a way that is specific to treaties. That makes, makes sense than using the sui generis fiduciary duty to do it. And I guess we, we do argue there's an ad hoc fiduciary duty, but only with respect to the process. But you, do you recognize that uh, the requirements for either an ad hoc fiduciary duty or sui generis uh, fiduciary duty are different than the duty to implement uh, the, the, the treaty? They are different, but we say we could satisfy both in this case. Okay. So, so we, we do say that the interest that the Anishinaabe have was a pre-existing interest in the revenues from their territories. It came from their title. It was modified into a treaty, uh, a treaty right, and it is a, a sufficient interest to attract the fiduciary duty. The Crown did assume some discretionary control but, but over that. fiduciary duty by its nature means that you do not advance, you do not, you're not mindful of your own interests in any regard. You're mindful of the other party's interests. Like if I'm, if I'm the trustee for my niece because my brother dies, I'm not allowed to sort of take a little bit of the money. I have to, everything has to go for my niece. However, if the, depending on the, the, the content of the treaty, and I, I, I put to you that this is, a, this is such a treaty, it contemplates a consideration both of the faithful commitment toward the First Nation, but a certain mindfulness of the condition of what was then the colony. That, that is, is that not implicit in the idea of to the extent that it is possible uh, on a, without loss or whatever the, the terms is, that there is some consideration of both the broader public's interests and a proper fulfillment of the obligations. That, that would be a, a faithful and diligent implementation of the treaty, whereas a fiduciary uh, duty would exclude any consideration of the broader public interest, and therefore, conceptually, they're different. I, I, I agree, except for this. I want to say this. With respect to the ad hoc fiduciary duty, we say that only applies to the process. That only applies to giving information that the Anishinaabe need in order to engage in the process to decide whether or not an a, um, increase is warranted. With respect to the sui generis fiduciary duty, it takes its content from the context. And we say that what in this context, what it requires is for the treaty to be implemented in a manner consistent with those overarching treaty principles. And those treaty principles include the principle of responsibility and the principle of respect. And that means 
we know the Crown has responsibilities other than to the Anishinaabe, and the Anishinaabe have to respect that. That's built in to the way, because it is a nation-nation relationship that respects autonomy. You have to respect the Crown's autonomy too. You have to respect the Crown's other responsibilities. This is what they're going to have to work out as they talk about how they're going to um, embed these decisions or these principles into their ongoing treaty relationship. Wouldn't that mean that any land session treaty that has other obligations as a, as a following from the land session uh, result, would result in a sui generis fiduciary duty? Not just in this case, but in every case. The generality with which you've cast the proposition would mean that in every case where land is ceded, there is necessarily a sui generis fiduciary duty that, gets, that arises. Um, in every case. I, I, I don't mean to cast it in those broader terms. I, I say that in, in this case we are like Garen in the sense that we were unable to realize the benefits of our territory without engaging in this treaty process with the Crown. The treaty, the, the Crown undertook or engaged with us in this process and said that it would administer things so that it would share with us. And so in this particular case we have this undertaking that it is going to do that for us. I didn't mean to make it so general. And I, I think I need to cede to Mr. Schachter. Thank you. Okay, I'm ready anytime you folks are. All right, let's go. Um, so, Chief Justice, Justices, first of all, we endorse what the Hurons have said. We adopt it. Secondly, my friend from Ontario talked about stage three. Um, he talked about 10 billion. I think Justice Jamal, uh, you said, or someone mentioned, it's a, uh, we're concerned about billions of dollars. Well, in stage three, we saw Ontario's honor of the crown on display and it was a sorry sight, if, you might, if I can say so. We proceeded at stage three to look at the evidence that would in help inform how it all plays out. Now, Ontario led evidence that the honour of the Crown, in their conception, means that at the end of the day, there's 1% share for the Anishinaabe on a mathematical basis starting in 2019. But more to the point, they also led evidence to suggest that for the last 170 years, there is no wealth at all to share with the Robinson Superior beneficiaries, a $7 to $11 billion loss. That's what we're talking about. Their conception of minus $11 billion and our expert through a two-time Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz, 126 billion at the top end. Now, is that something the judge can do? Yes. The reason why the judge, the trial judge, is best suited to do that is because we are not asking the judge to adjudicate Her Majesty's graciousness. And this is an important point. 
people seem to be thinking, or maybe you're thinking, that what we are asking the court to do is adjudicate graciousness. We're not. We're asking the court to get on with interpreting a quantification of loss based on the promise that in case the territory hereby ceded by the second part shall at any future period produce an amount which will enable the government without incurring loss to increase the annuity, then it shall be. Now in order to figure that out, and even if you say that there's discretion, you would have to be able to say, well, how much did they actually get from this territory? If you're going to be a judge at some point in time to whether it's reasonableness or correctness, to question or to sit in judgment as a trial judge or as an appeal court judge, if you're gonna sit in judgment on, is this fair and just and in accordance with the party's understanding? Yeah, yeah but, but there has to be a methodology. There has to be a methodology. You don't pluck these things out of the air and you don't come up with a number and say, I've got a guy who's got a Nobel Prize, I win. It, it doesn't work that way. You have to you, listen to the question. You have to have a legal framework. You can't just make it up. And, and if the legal framework is unsound, then that is the basis upon which appellate courts intervene. And I completely agree with that, and that's exactly what we did in stage three. We gave evidence and we had argument about what the principles were what the legal principles were to inform the sh proper share. Yes. I'm just a little concerned. I mean, stage three isn't in front of us. And so, um, and hopefully it, will, it won't be. Um, so I guess I would be, um, I would just ask you to kind of focus on how this is relevant to the issues okay. that are before us. All right. Thank so let's, let's uh, you've got my point about what is and is not in stage three. I want to talk about treaty interpretation uh, right now, and I want to say that even if the focus uh, was only on the treaty text, which I acknowledge isn't the correct way to do treaty interpretation, but its grammatical structure supports the trial judge's interpretation. And my friend took you to the um, uh, treaty agreement. It's at tab one of my compendium as well. And I've highlighted on uh, page three of uh, my condensed book, page three, um, about the promise of the 500 pounds being increased. Now, the 500 pounds is the only annuity referenced in the, two, in, in, in the treaty. It's to be paid and delivered to the said chiefs and their tribes, not paid and delivered to individuals, and the evidence made clear at trial that, in fact, between 1851 and 1854, it was delivered collectively on the Huron side and to the, chief, uh, to the chiefs on behalf of all members uh, through the Hudson's Bay Company uh, on, on the superior side. But what is promised is that it will be augmented from time to time. Now let's pause. Up to this point in the treaty document, there's one annuity, it's collective, it seems to be subject to a mandatory increase if certain events take place. It's also during a uh, fut some future period to be augmented from time to time, 
not necessarily every single year. The augmentation promise does not explain how the augmented amount is supposed to be increased or paid. That's what the proviso that follows expressly says. It says, provided the amount paid to each individual shall not exceed the sum of one pound provincial currency, that's $4. Now, this subclause doesn't speak to what is augmented. In its ordinary grammatical construction, it speaks to what part of the collective annuity can be paid or dispersed in any one year. Now, the limit on payment to individuals is expressed as a yearly cap, while the augmentation obligation is not a yearly payment obligation, but one that arises from time to time. In short, the augmentation clause is actually doing different work and on a, over a different time period than the distributive cap. The $4 simply limits what can be paid to individuals. So we are left with, I think, a common sense question about the text itself. If Robinson intended to have the $4 apply to limit the collective entitlement, why didn't he just write that, uh, write that into the treaty? He could have authored something with some clarity. The annuity shall be augmented from time to time provided the annuity shall never exceed the sum of uh, um, a population of tribe times $4 per per person. But he didn't do that. The text reads what it reads, and when you understand the factual matrix, it makes complete, the trial judge's interpretation makes the com most and complete sense. And I want to get directly to the question that must be uh, pressing, which is, well, why? Why would Robinson have decided to put in a limit on the portion of the collective annuity that can be dispersed to individuals in any one year? Why would he do that if the trial judge is correct? Well, here's the thing. It's not immediately obvious to us sitting in 2023 but it was most certainly plain and obvious to people in 1850. In 1850, as the evidence disclosed and as the trial judge found, it was common knowledge and a constant crown concern that giving cash annuities to individuals was not in the, annuity, uh, in the individual's or the band's best interests. The individual would soon be dispossessed and separated by, from their annuity by unscrupulous petty traders. I need only go to the Vidal and Anderson report, which I'm sure you're familiar with from 1849. You don't need to turn it up, but it's at tab five. And what they say, they say that money payments are highly prejudicial to the interests of Indians is almost universally admitted. This very same concern about letting individuals get money was the reason why in 1829 there was a Colborne policy. That Colborne policy was put in place to try and prevent individuals from getting money unless there could be specific justification for it. 
That's at the condensed book, tab six, pages 121, 122, and 125. We don't need to turn it up. But the trial judge took that into consideration, and she discusses the Colborne policy and its implications for her interpretation um, in her reasons at 106 to 108 and 454 and 458. And why $4 and not $10? There is, as far as I know, only one record in the evidence. Now, my friend took you to the um, uh, Robinson's diary where he talked about distributing the money, the gratuity, the first payment. There's only one record in the evidence where the Crown actor actually divided up a collective entitlement partially to the collective and partially to individuals where the Crown actor thought it, would, it was prudent to limit what individuals could get to $4. When was that? That's when Robinson distributed the gratuity. You'll see, and it's not before you, but it's trial exhibit 1-0747 in the stage one. When Robinson distributed the gratuity of $2,000 on the Huron side, many, maybe most, of the people, individuals, only received $4. Few got five, one or two got six. But for some reason, it was, there was a $4 limit set by Robinson or agreed to by the chiefs. Don't know why that is. That's all there is in the record. But it tells you that there is perhaps a reason in the historical record why Robinson would insert in, we're going to limit the amount that individuals can get to $4, but we understand you're our treaty partner and we're not going to limit what the collective gets. And that would also make sense if you think about it. Remember when the trial judge said kinship and reciprocity were principles that guided the relationship? Well, kinship requires taking care of one another. Reciprocity requires getting back a gift commensurate with what you gave. And we're talking about the economic value of what you gave. Well, if that's the milieu in which the bargain was reached in 1850, both parties understood that they would be sharing the wealth. And indeed, ultimately, that's what the trial judge decided. So her interpretation is not far off. Her interpretation is right on the mark. Ontario's proposed interpretation, and the one that the minority decided upon, requires this court to ignore the trial judge's findings of fact that a $4 cap was not agreed to, a $4 cap would not have been reasonable and just, a $4 cap is not an amount that the Anishinaabe would have believed to be fair and reasonable. Remember, the, the context of what's happening here is everybody else in the other treaties before 1850, they're getting $10 per person. If Robinson had intended, and the judge picks up on this, she says, it would have made sense if you were going to have some sort of cap to make it a $10 cap. Because that's 
what other people were getting in the other treaties. Remember, Robinson said, the reason why I can't pay you what I'm paying other people is because this land is so notoriously barren and sterile. So that's why he gives them less. But they didn't want less. They thought they had, he called it extravagant notions of their, or maybe Vidal and Anderson called it extravagant notions of what they thought was fair and uh, that their land was worth. But they reached a compromise, and it could not have been clear what Vidal and Anderson say, and, and I really, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to take the time to read it to you because it's at tab five of my material, uh, of my condensed book. Vidal and Anderson make the point at paragraph 109 of the condensed book, it will not be easy to ascertain the actual value of the vast but sterile territory on account of it being so little known. But while making terms in accordance with present information of its resources, provision might be made if necessary for an increase of payment upon the further discovery and development of any new sources of wealth. That idea was not floated first by Vidal and Anderson. Shingwakon since 1846, the lead negotiator on the Huron side, he was asking for a share of the wealth. And the bargain they reached gives them a share of the wealth, but then we have this $4 limit on distribution to individuals. And the judge understood why there was a limit, and it made sense. And my friend in his factum talked about an 1893 petition from a fellow by the name of Mashakeish. Now, that petition from Mashakeish, I'm not going to turn it up, but if you looked at it, it's not inconsistent with the trial judge's decision to say that individuals' limits were capped to $4. That's true. But if you actually take Mashakeish for what he says, he actually tells a story whereby the treaty is signed by everybody, and only after it is signed does Robinson start explaining that individuals are going to get $4. Well, if that's true, then the $4 doesn't even form part of the bargain. Well, we have a... Yes? I was just going to ask, so I'm just looking at uh, where the trial judge goes through this whole thing with the $10 and Chief uh, Shingwa Khan say, says basically, well, if you're not going to give us $10 like you're doing with the others, we're going to get something else. And isn't the something else the, the collective that you're talking about? Uh, absolutely. The, w w what the something else is, of course, is they took a chance. They said, we believe this land is valuable. You're, prepared, you're poor. You're, you don't have the money, the crown. You don't have the money now. But you know what? We're partners. If and when there is ever wealth to be shared, we will share it. The collective will get some, you will get some, and you, Canada, because you have this, uh, or Canada, excuse me, crown, we understand that f there should be a limit on what individuals can get, lest they be dispossessed of it by petty traders and that it would all be injurious to them instead of being any help to them. By That's the way, the reality you were, you were on the correct. Ground. It was the United Province of Canada. Yes. So Canada was still applicable. It wasn't the Dominion of Canada.
Yes, okay, my, my apologies for not, I, I, could, I should have just gone with that. Um, so I think you have to be, I don't have a lot of time uh, left, but I think the trial judge at paragraph 466, when she considered all the evidence said, a plan to share the wealth on an if and when basis through an augmentation clause was always central to the understanding, the aspiration, and the intent of both the Anishinaabe and the Crown. And that's a very important finding, which is very hard to reconcile with the interpretation of the treaty that my friend Ontario uh, urges upon you. Now, I want to turn to a series of errors to point out a series of errors that I think the minority of the Court of Appeal made in their reasoning, in their reasoning path. Firstly, they erred in finding that the annuity payments was always intended to be dispersed to individuals. It wasn't. It was, in fact, dispersed collectively. I've already referred to that. Secondly, the minority errs when they construed Robinson's 1851 response to a Huron petition and that's where they were asking that the global collective amount should be distributed not based on the respective population of each band within a treaty territory, but it should be based on the wealth or the, the territory that each band controlled. And we know from looking at the Bagot Commission report from 1844 that the, the, that the population calculation where you figure out the population of each band in a whole band uh, in, a, in a treaty conglomerate you might have 13 bands and you divide up the annuity based on their respective populations that's what Robinson was uh, on about in 1851 but the minority of the Court of Appeal took that to mean that Robinson was expressing the view that the collective annuity was calculated on the basis of population times four dollars. That's not it at all. They were just completely off the mark. Next, they erred in placing weight on an alleged error of the trial judge that she didn't make. The trial judge didn't say that there were two um, uh, tr separate annuities. At paragraph 464, she made clear that there's one annuity out of which a distribution to individuals is limited. Next, they erred in finding as a fact that the Anishinaabe were only seeking a $10 annuity amount. The trial judge on the facts found otherwise at paragraph 248 to 249. And the minority's error there is their paragraph 466. Fifth error, the minority erred in concluding that there was no pressure from Robinson to earmark funds for individual distribution. And hence, their reasoning was, there's no reason to mention a $4 individual distributive cap. Respectfully, that conclusion ignores the great body of history of treaty making up to 1850. There were demands made generally for annuity payments by individuals. It's in the Bagot Commission report, they discuss it. And in fact, in this case, 
Vidal and Anderson, again, it's 1849, pages five and six of tab five. You don't have to turn it up, but you will find there the Robinson Superior Anishinaabe demanding money. They're demanding individual payments. They wanted $30 a head forever. Others wanted 100, says Vidal and Anderson. Some wanted 10. But the point is, to say that there were not demands is incorrect. Next, the minority erred in concluding that the province's dire financial position was inconsistent with Robinson promising an uncapped amount. Respectfully, the dire position that the Crown was in doesn't tell us anything about their willingness to share the bounty if there is wealth to be shared. Now, in arriving at this conclusion, the minority simply ignored the trial judge's findings of fact about the common intention of the parties to share the wealth. And it also ignores the treaty bargain was the product of employing and respecting the Anishinaabe principles of kinship and reciprocity, which I spoke about earlier. The final thing my friend said is, well, there's nothing in the record, and um, he took you to, uh, made mention of the 1864 Gaspé uh, Treaty. Sorry, not Gaspé Treaty, excuse me. Let me see if I can find it. It's going to be at tab seven of my condensed book. It's the Gaspé and Sault Ste. Marie reports of inspectors. This was a document produced by Ontario, um, and my friend uh, has acknowledged that uh, it, it could be taken into account. If you look at the appendix at page 129 of the condensed book, uh, Chinini, uh who, together with Nebin Negoching, is, is making the complaint about the bargain that was reached with Robinson in 1850. They say, we made a treaty with him and surrendered a large portion of our lands. Mr. Robinson promised us that the land should be surveyed and sold and that at the end of one year, we and each of our member of our people should receive $4 in cash and the rest of the money should be invested at interest for our benefit. Well, there's a clear expression of part of it's going to be $4 going to individuals, the rest going to the collective. That's consistent with the trial judge's, determine, uh, the trial judge's uh, decision and interpretation. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's completely dispositive and that's the end all of it. But the fact of the matter is, it's there and it's consistent and it should give you some comfort that the trial judge wasn't off the mark in her interpretation. Um, those are my comments on treaty interpretation. I do have uh, uh, very little time, but I wouldn't mind uh, addressing the issue of the honour of the Crown um, and the role to play. Um, the Court of Appeal in this case at paragraph 258 was of the view there's no work to be done by fiduciary duty that can't be done by the honour of the Crown in a breach of treaty case. Um, we agree with that. 
Um, the Ontario Court of Appeal in the recent Chippewas of Nawash case said for a breach of duty of diligent implementation, you could get ec uh, equitable compensation. The idea that remedies available for breach of treaty can include equitable relief is an appropriate one and one that makes sense. Um, this court in Southwind in 2021 provided, I think, insightful guidance about why the remedies for breach of fiduciary duty should similarly be available for, um, uh, in a case of breach of treaty. And I've got this at my condensed book, tab 25. I'm going to refer to just a couple passages uh, to Southwind. But your premise is that you don't, I hear, you don't need the fiduciary duty if the honour of the Crown is read very widely. But right, but I, I wanted to explain, sorry, no, I, I interrupted you. I wanted to explain why it is that um, those, the principles are equally, the principles driving why we have remedies in equity for breach of fiduciary duty are similar to breach of treaty. And the point I want to make is taken from Southwind, where at paragraph 73, Justice McLaughlin is first quoted with approval where she says, or said, the proper approach to equitable compensation is to look to the policy behind compensation for breach of fiduciary duty and determine what remedies will further that policy. Well, you could say the same thing for breach of treaty, and you should. Now, moreover, both breach of fiduciary duty, uh, sorry, both fiduciary law and treaty and Aboriginal rights law, I'm talking about sweet, generous fiduciary duty, where the Crown can have many hats and balance interests. Um, both have their care and concern with protecting fiduciary relationships and encouraging fulfillment of solemn, solemn promises that are undertaken. So you can see helpful comments from this in paragraph 60 of South. You Wind. can see all kinds of comments going in every direction yes. because at least in my impoverished understanding of these things, the jurisprudence is irreconcilable. It's inconsistent. It, I, I know you're shocked. The idea that the court could say something that doesn't conform to what it said before, it's true. It can happen. And, and the, in the area of the honor of the crown and its relation to fiduciary duties, the court has gone one way and then it's gone the other way. The honor of the crown flows from fiduciary duties. Fiduciary duties follow from the honor of the crown. The honor of the crown is an overarching concept. It's a subordinate thing. It's all over the place. It's our job to bring coherence and clarity to it and not mess it up by saying maybe it's a little bit of fiduciary duty, maybe it's no. honor the crown, maybe it's a little bit but of this is, implementation. I'm sorry, this is the exact point I'm making, that we, it, it, time has come. Jettison the idea of sweet, generous fiduciary duty if you must, if it is so complicated, but the point I'm making is that the reason for Fidu Remember in Wacom where they said there's a flood of fiduciary claims? It's because lawyers like me are trying to jam fiduciary duties so we can get equitable remedies? Well, we don't need that. The honor of the crown does do it all, and the reason is is because fiduciary duty exists to further a socially important relationship, paragraph 60 um, of, uh, of Southwind, and the Professor Rotman is quoted and it says, while he said, while it may appear that the fiduciary concept exists to protect beneficiaries' interests, 
the effect is merely ancillary to its protection of fiduciary relationships. And that's the important point. Treaty relationships and fiduciary relationships, we're talking about the importance of relationships, and these relationships deserve proper remedies. And you can skip over fiduciary duty if you want to. You, perhaps it's time to bring some doctrinal order. I know there's been a lot of criticism about the Supreme Court from us, the Australian commentators, but we don't need fiduciary duty, in my view, if the honour of the Crown is give, given, the, given its just due. So the honour of the Crown has to subsume what um, fiduciary duties did give rise to equitable remedies and um, use the fide and get around limitation periods is it, like that, what else that, does that's right. okay so yeah. what else does the honor of the crown have to do then if you say that it it the is honor no has, longer uh, necessary honor of the crown in this particular case uh, um, uh, we say there is no limitation problem and i've got my argument i don't have time to go into it ontario doesn't seem to be pressing it but some of the cases were argued as fiduciary too right uh, well, but, but uh, uh, on cases, I'm sorry, you mean some of the cases in other jurisdictions? Yeah. In other jurisdictions, what you need is you need a constitutional challenge uh, to explain why the honour of the Crown, or, or you don't need the constitutional challenge, you could do without it. The, I've written in my material uh, that we Wakeham, uh, Lehman, and uh, MMF do not stand for the proposition that laws of limitations always apply. They stand for the proposition that the principles animating laws of limitations apply, but so do other important principles. And in MMF, reconciliation was a principle that won the day. Now, in honor, what the, that is what the honor of the crown brings. It brings a balancing, and it brings an, an inquiry to ask, should the, um, uh, 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 should the laws of limitation apply because of the honour of the Crown? We say, I say, probably shouldn't. doesn't make sense. You dealt with this and Jim shot both sides. I'm not arguing that. I shouldn't be arguing that case But is now. the honour of the Crown any more complicated that in all its dealing with Indigenous peoples, the Crown should faithfully and honestly and uh, having regard to the genuine interests of Indigenous peoples, deal with them fairly? And, and fulfill its obligations faithfully. And that can be manifested through treaties, that can be manifested through sui generis uh, 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 fiduciary relationships. It can be manifested in terms of the duty to accommodate, which doesn't involve any kind of fiduciary relationship. It's, it's just that you, the Crown has to act in a manner which is mindful and faithful to its obligations in all of their forms. It's, that's easy to say the problem is what you do in practice and what remedy there is for it. And I, final point before I go and I, 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 is we need a remedy in this case. We need a remedy that's more than just a declaration. And I, I argue for it, I explain it, I don't have time to talk about it uh, further. Um, I would ask the court's indulgence to give my friend Canada the 10 minutes that they were promised, and I apologize that I, um, everyone seems to have gotten pushed. So thank you. Unless there's any questions, that's all my time.
Chief Justice, Justices, on behalf of the Attorney General of Canada, I intend to address two points. First is how the proper framework for this case is the duty of diligent implementation of treaty promises. In short, Canada submits that this duty, just like other duties arising from the honor of the Crown, can give rise to a range of remedies and is not limited to declaratory relief. Then secondly, I plan to address the issue of fiduciary duty. Why no fiduciary duty arises in this case and why you shouldn't expand fiduciary duty doctrine. But before going to my first point, as a preliminary comment on the treaty interpretation question, Canada did not appeal from the courts below. And in not appealing, Canada accepted the treaty interpretation given, that is, that the treaties mean that the Crown must increase the annuities where economic circumstances allow, and that there is no hard cap of $4 on the annuities. Canada has attempted to follow this court's guidance that reconciliation is best achieved through negotiation and has chosen to focus its efforts on the renewal of the treaty relationship, implementing treaty obligations, and addressing past wrongs in the spirit of Section 35 based on affirmation of rights, respect, cooperation, and partnership. To my first point then, which is that the duty of diligent implementation is the right framework for this case. This court's 2013 Manitoba Métis decision made clear that one of the duties flowing from the honor of the Crown is the duty of diligent implementation of treaties and treaty promises. Now the content of that duty is not fiduciary duty light, as has been suggested. It is a heavy obligation. The Crown must perform it in a way that pursues the purpose behind the promise. And there's been this sense of a competition between the duty of diligent implementation on one hand and fiduciary duty on the other that comes from this issue of remedies. But before I say more about remedies, I would emphasize this it should be left to the stage three trial judge to determine the remedies here. What is before this court is a very high level question on remedy, and that is whether declaratory relief is the only relief available from courts for a breach of the duty of diligent implementation. This court can clarify the principle that declaratory relief is not the only kind of relief available. To be clear, declaratory relief is a significant remedy. Typically, it will be the appropriate remedy in diligent implementation cases. Declarations are a basis for negotiations. Negotiations give the parties access to a much bigger remedial toolkits than courts. But Canada does say that in appropriate cases, courts can grant more than declaratory relief. That relief, we say, is not in the form of equitable compensation. It's not common law damages. The um, relief available from a breach of the duty of diligent implementation is a form of sui generis remedies. Compensation would be a form of sui generis compensation. We can't directly import the idea of equitable compensation from the fiduciary doctrine. In this case, we say one reason why we say an appropriate remedy may involve money 
is because the treaty term here is about money. This is a money promise. It makes sense that it may require money to repair the breach. To my second point then about... Say that, that it can involve money though at this stage before uh, Her Majesty's been given, or His Majesty now, been given an opportunity to uh, exercise his graciousness uh, or exercise his discretion. Uh, it's a question of the stage. So you're speaking in generalities and I'd like to understand um, at this stage, is there uh, a basis for a substantive remedy? Um, or is that, does that flow after there's been a declaration and opportunity for the crowns to uh, consider their dis exercise of discretion in light of the declaration, and then the court can evaluate in a proper context whether the discretion has been exercised in accordance with the terms of the treaty? Yes. Ideally, we would be doing the latter. The, the Crown would have exercised its discretion under the treaty, and then if necessary, courts could assess, review that exercise of discretion and um, see if it meets the standard. Of course, in this case, the Crown did not exercise its discretion in respect of this provision for 150 years. And so that's why we say in this case, the circumstances are such that it is open to the court to consider other forms of relief than declaratory, i.e. sui generis compensation. Um, with respect to the past, the court doesn't have an exercise of that generation, uh, of that um, discretion through the generations, I guess, from time to time in the words of the treaty. And that's why we're in this situation where we say it may be appropriate to go beyond declaratory relief. In the ordinary course, if the, if the Crown is exercising its discretion uh, from time to time, then yes, the court would be in review of that exercise and it may be more appropriate that relief is declaratory. But for us, how would that work to your left? So for us, how would that work? Um, how would it work with respect to the past or uh, with respect yes. to the future? Well, both actually. Yeah. Okay. How would that work? Uh, with us, do, does it get sent back? Uh, how do you foresee it? Okay, well, in this particular case, I think that the, um, as I've said, the, we don't have a decision yet from stage three as to the past. Um, the specific remedy issues should be left to stage three to be determined, we say. The broader principle, um, you can clarify that relief beyond declaratory is available. For the future, um, we do have in the, um, the trial judge's judgments as amended by the Court of Appeal, um, we have a framework for that future exercise of discretion um, because the, uh, and I'm looking at Appendix A of the Court of Appeal's decision, because in its declarations it talks about um, the obligation periodically to engage in a process in consultation with the First Nation. Um, it talks about um, the process that's adopted, affording sufficient Crown disclosure. Um, it, it includes these process elements that would guide a future exercise of discretion by the Crown, which then would be Thank reviewable. By the, by the, uh, the, one of the I, things about declaratory relief that is fundamental is that 
By the way, it wasn't part of the common law until middle part of the 19th century when it was brought in from Scots law. And the idea behind it in a very general sense is that uh, it, the, the parties come to understand their respective obligations and rights and therefore understand how to proceed on that basis. The declaratory judgment doesn't say you pay this amount or here's an injunction. Whatever. It says here, are, here is a clarification, here is a declaration of respective rights and responsibilities. And, and the court thus makes no order but informs in a definitive and authoritative way how the parties relate to one another legally. And then it's kind of over to you, the parties. And, and at, after that, once the declaration is made, people are aware of their obligations and rights. And if they fail to adhere to their obligations, then the other party can pursue legal action and, 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 and realize on it. But the idea between for a declaration is, now you know how to proceed, go ye forth and, and act upon it. And what I, the sense I get from Ontario is, once the clarification has been made, which this whole process is about, they will undertake to give effect to it. And I, 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 that's how I've understood Ontario's position throughout. Yes, and, and I agree with all of that. And as I said, typically declarations will be the appropriate relief. What we're saying is that the courts do have the ability to go broader, just as with other duties arising from the honor of the Crown to inappropriate cases. Justice Kirkatsanis has a question for you. Okay. Fast question, factory background. The Southern Ontario treaties um, figure <clears throat> in these treaty negotiations, and in particular the reliance on the $10 per person. Can you uh, assist me with how those treaties uh, deal with annuities, how they were calculated, described or distributed? If you can't, it's all right, I'll look it up. Yes, I'm afraid I don't think I can assist okay. with that. Thank you. Yeah, one last question, because we exercise our graciousness. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, when you refer to sui generis compensation, you're not referring to sui generis fiduciary compensation. And do I take it then that really you're just putting sui generis um, because treaties have been said to be sui generis, and really your concept isn't sui generis compensation, it's treaty compensation. Would that be a fair way of assess, I, assessing I think that would position? be fine. I mean, the distinction is, yes, treaties are sui generis, so, so compensation it, arising from a breach of the duty to implement them would be sui generis. Treaty compensation is open to us. Yes, I think okay. what's important is to distinguish between common law damages, which sometimes we're hearing, equitable compensation, which is specific to fiduciary duties. All right, thank you very much. The court is adjourned till uh, tomorrow morning, 9.30.